Welcome to Parallel Worlds Audio Issue 8, April 2020, expertly recorded the articles that appear in this month's Parallel Worlds magazine. Editorial It struck this writer the other day that the dynamics of information had changed dramatically in my lifetime, specifically in the amount of it. The days are obviously long gone when authors would pad out their serialized novels with page-long descriptions of the buttons on their characters' coats. But another shift in the economics of words has taken place in recent years. We've finally transitioned to a post-scarcity economy when it comes to information. And that has had interesting ramifications. I receive a daily email service called The Browser which contains links to five articles sourced from around the internet over the previous 24 hours. I heartily recommend it for anyone whose time is limited. Having a few smart people choose the five best bits of writing on the internet every day and dump them in your inbox is a cracking service. As I skim the synopses every morning, I weigh up how potentially interesting the subject is, ooh, a philosophy of consciousness, against the word count. 6,800 words? Ain't nobody got time for that. If it's fewer than 2,000 words, it stands a good chance of being read. Around 1,200 is ideal. A pleasing diversion rather than a commitment. A thousand words, in my view, is a perfectly serviceable unit of thought and an ample space in which to say something useful. This could perhaps be evidence of my iPhone-addled millennial inability to pay attention to anything for longer than it takes to give a star rating out of five, but I venture that something else is at play here. Since the internet, short is valuable, short is desirable, short is ideal. Not just articles, either. How many three-hour films released in the last 20 years wouldn't have been improved with a little more left on the cutting room floor? How many thousand-page novels wouldn't have benefited from a little more editorial vigor? Essentially, today, things should be short. There's just so much of everything. Netflix is a bottomless chasm of some of the best television ever made. Most people seem to have tens or hundreds of world-class games in their Steam libraries. The internet is absolutely full of interesting, useful things to read. So I'm advocating a new standard. A movement, if you will. Pro brevity. In a post-scarcity age of great things to read and play and watch, respect for your audience's time is perhaps an underrated courtesy. We promise to respect your time. We will valiantly whittle away waffle, pare back padding, incise the irrelevant, to make sure that only good, interesting, useful stuff fills our pages. Join the revolution. Lost in Space, an enduring legacy of sci-fi brilliance. It's one of science fiction's oldest franchises, and one that has been successfully revived several times. And yet, Lost in Space is rarely spoken of with the same reverence as Star Wars, Doctor Who, or Star Trek. It's most definitely worth your attention. Espionage, sabotage, and bon voyage... A luminous, saucer-shaped vessel ascends into space, an unwelcome and inadvertent stowaway trapped within. Amid the stars, this saboteur finds himself in a terribly awkward situation. 
A barrage of meteors strikes the hull of the Jupiter II, resulting from a weight miscalculation. That weight was the saboteurs. Unversed in the control console's functions, he must rouse the pilot from cryogenics, which also means explaining his presence. So goes a heated sequence from the pilot episode of Lost in Space. The reluctant stowaway first aired in 1965. The story offered from the very beginning a mixture of mystery, mistrust and mayhem. While engaging in notions of futurism, Lost in Space displayed many of the 60s vibes that its contemporary programmes offered, but in many ways it stood out from the rest too. The show revolved around the concept of an atomic family thrust into space. While en route to Alpha Centauri, their vessel is run hopelessly off course, hence the show's name. The series followed their survival tactics and alien encounters, all while living in the pressurised atmosphere of familial care and companionship. Entertaining in its own day, Lost in Space has influenced many other franchises. It has since had a vibrant afterlife, with numerous reboots. Breaking into the 1960s was some of the most significant sci-fi stories of popular culture, which continue to entice modern audiences. These include Doctor Who and Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek, movies like 2001, A Space Odyssey, Planet of the Apes and The Time Machine were produced. It was in this hotbed filled with hatching eggs of fantasy that Lost in Space was conceived. Like many of the aforementioned works, this series holds an important place in sci-fi history. It's a franchise beloved by movie makers and viewers alike. Erwin Allen, producer of the show, made a hefty contribution to the sci-fi entertainment of the decade. Lost in Space was one of four sci-fi series he produced in the 1960s. Perhaps Allen's greatest contribution to the art of filmmaking was his taste for talent, his knack for seeing the genius and potential in actors, writers, musicians and other artists. Lost in Space accumulated a splendid cast to back its characters. Well known for the vigilante hero of Disney's Zorro, Guy Williams was cast as John Robinson, the head of the family in Lost in Space. At his side was co-star June Lockhart in the role of Professor Maureen Robinson. Lockhart was known for her extensive career in television, especially a recurring role in Lassie. Jonathan Harris, portraying the warped Dr Zachary Smith, had a stereotype for gangster-esque roles with humorous slants. Such cases as these included guest roles on series like General Electric Theatre and Mel Brooks's Get Smart. Young Bill Moomy, who had been on several episodes of The Twilight Zone, now played the bright, curious, ever-determined Will Robinson. Many of the guest actors appearing on the show had previous backgrounds or future inclusions in some of the most memorable sci-fi entertainment of all time. Michael Rennie, who had starred as Klaatu in the cult classic The Day the Earth Stood Still, played another alien in Lost in Space. In the show, he played the Keeper, whose sole objective was to capture two human specimens, one of each sex, for his growing menagerie of exotic creatures. In the episode The Challenge was an extremely youthful Kurt Russell, portraying a prince who had to prove himself in a series of trials to test his vigour and courage. The opponent he chooses is Will Robinson. In the decades since then, Russell has found his way onto the silver screen in such memorable sci-fi roles as R.J. McCready in John Carpenter's The Thing and Ego 
in James Gunn's Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2. Also appearing in the challenge, Michael Ansara portrays the prince's father, the supreme ruler over his planet. Ansara also became part of the Star Trek franchise, first appearing as Commander Kang in the original series episode Day of the Dove. Erwin Allen would also employ Ansara as a shiny alien in the time tunnel. The guy apparently couldn't get away from being a stern yet admirable extraterrestrial. Lost in Space was even a competitor with Star Trek, the original series, which struggled during its initial airing and was in a run for ratings with Lost in Space for two seasons. Both shows shared individual plots that involved alien mind control, deadly plants and encounters with seemingly abandoned spacecraft in the cold corners of the cosmos. Alexander Courage, composer of the long-lived Star Trek theme, also wrote music for individual episodes of Lost in Space. A Saturday Night Live skit later poked fun at the rivalry and similarity between the two shows. The skit, titled Star Trek The Last Voyage, depicted an NBC personnel boarding the Enterprise and informing the actors that Star Trek has been dropped. After delivering the distressing news, the NBC official asks his partner, What do you think, Curtis? You think we can sell any of this junk to Lost in Space? There is one particular mark of excellence which Lost in Space can tout that Star Trek can't. That is, legendary Star Wars composer John Williams wrote the themes for Lost in Space. While still a young composer, Williams got the opportunity to score the themes for the first season, along with the set of musical pieces that became common filler material. Alan brought Williams back to score a new opening theme for the third season. The dynamic, frenzied score from season three inspired the soundtrack of the modern Netflix reboot of the series. Later, in 1977, audiences would be blown away by Williams's thundering, trumpeting, triumphant theme accompanying Star Wars. Ever since, Williams has scored every trilogy comprising the Skywalker saga, ending with 2019's The Rise of Skywalker. His masterful work on Lost in Space with its eerie, foreboding vibes prepared Williams for what he'd be doing years later on big motion pictures in the sci-fi genre. While on the topic of Star Wars, it should be noted that the Lost in Space fandom has spawned some tantalising theories regarding the notion that Erwin Allen's series might have had some influence on Lucas's classic. After all, it was only a nine-year window between the cancellation of Lost in Space and the release of Star Wars, both productions from 20th Century Fox. This writer would like to share a personal comparison of two sequences from the two separate franchises. It is the final episode of season one, Follow the Leader, and John Robinson has his free will constrained after being inhabited by the spirit of a deceased alien warrior. John turns against his family and dons the death mask of the alien. Near the end... John takes his son Will to the edge of a cliff over an immeasurable chasm, the bottom of which is the fiery core of Priplanus. Here, two hearts stand in recognition of one another. John, prompted by the alien's will, has been commanded to destroy his son. Will asks to see his father's face one last time, and John removes the mask. Will begins telling his father he loves him and that he could fight this thing. John eventually overcomes the Maleficent spirit, casting the mask, representing the living essence of the alien, into deep, flaming oblivion. 
The scenario resembles the conflict between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, which reaches its climax in the presence of Emperor Palpatine in Return of the Jedi. Similarly, it's a battle between father and son. Luke believes there is still goodness in Vader. Will believed there was a remnant of love within his dad. Vader conquers the evil which was manipulating him and threatening his son, as does John Robinson. Like John, Vader takes his evil overlord and throws him down into oblivion. Finally, Vader's mask is removed with the aid of his son, just as Will's actions had resulted in the removal of his dad's mask. As time has progressed, it's become evident that the Lost in Space audience keenly enjoyed the troublesome trio, Dr. Smith, Will and Robot B9. The plot of most episodes may be summed up in this scenario. Smith goes glumphing around, bewailing his back pain and monologuing on his virtues and achievements which don't exist. He comes upon something that might potentially benefit him. In attempting to acquire the perceived good, he endangers the well-being of all. Meanwhile, the robot, who is a veritable nanny for Smith and any of the children who tag along, tries to caution them. Everything that made its way into Smith's personality came from the genius of Harris's acting. His treatment of Zachary Smith was superb, keeping him a stark and quick-tempered assassin in the early episodes and transforming him into a caricature of absurdity as the tone of the series turned cornier. Smith constantly attempts to hold some office of tremendous power, wield a terrible force to lay siege upon the galaxy or else get another ship to whisk him off back to Earth. But more often than not, he's being used as a puppet in the midst of a much darker scheme. Lost in Space remains a cult classic to this day. Whether you like it for its comedic parts or its sobering moments of distress, it continually offers something of value. Many screen producers have recognised the heart and drama that went into the story, and it has prompted a slew of reruns and retellings. In each remake, actors from the original series have either reprised their roles or made cameos. The first retelling was the 1973 Hanna-Barbera cartoon. The Robinsons had different first names, and there were other characters who had not been in the former series. Dr Smith was the singular character to have remained. He was the same, right down to his voice, for it was Jonathan Harris who provided the character's vocals. This Smith was a comical, bumbling klutz, identical to the one in the original. The next adaptation came as a Hollywood feature in 1988, the same year the film Armageddon was released. Other than some of the graphics employed for this cinematic retelling, the Lost in Space movie struck this writer as lacking in quality. The film did, however, include cameos from a handful of original cast members. Finally, the most recent reboot of the franchise is the Netflix original series, the second season of which was released last December. Like all the adaptations, this one has its own unique look. Some of the dynamics and character temperaments have been changed, but the premise of being lost is more or less familiar. The Netflix series is, in this writer's opinion, the superior reboot of the lot. It's clean, crisp, daring, amusing and intriguing. One actor from the original series to bless this particular remake was none other than Bill Moomy, who had played Will Robinson in the 60s. Here, in an all-too-brief cameo, Moomy plays a dying Dr Smith, found by the scoundrel June Harris, who steals Smith's jacket along with his ID. As she puts on the jacket, she dons the persona of Dr Smith and holds onto it, 
for dear life. The little sequence inspires another personal speculation, a potential fulfilment of a revelation given in the original series. In the 1967 episode The Space Creature, Smith, acting in the person of an alien entity, exclaims to Will, I am you, 40 years from now, I am your id. While the moral premise of the plot had Will face down an alternate's ego of self, it is amusing to ponder whether Smith himself was a manifestation of what Will could have become if he wasn't careful. It's ironic that Bill Mooney, who had played Will, did become Dr. Smith decades later in the reboot. The Netflix series has brought renewed vibrance to Lost in Space. It's a welcomed retelling of a classic and beloved sci-fi tale. At its roots, the story remains one of unity and love. Does a family always function in the most convenient way possible? We know that's impossible, yet it's a necessary struggle. One of the lasting reflections this writer took from popular shows like Lost in Space and The Mandalorian is that love costs us something, and that, through it all, family remains devoted to one another, despite their differences. To quote Professor John Robinson, Love, in all the worlds and galaxies of this universe, there is nothing stronger. Space magic, the popularity and plausibility of the future mythic. Warframe, Destiny, Warhammer, Outriders, Equinox. What do they all have in common? The two traditional settings for escapist fiction were medieval fantasy with its axes, orcs and bows, and science fiction with its blasters and warp drives. However, in recent years a new template has emerged. Visions of humanity's far future, but with many of the trappings of fantasy. Enter the future mythic. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. The third of Arthur C. Clarke's laws is difficult to argue with. Compare the technology of today with the legends of a thousand years ago, for example. The sword in the stone, for instance, would lose a degree of mystique if it had fingerprint recognition built into the hilt. Similarly, it would be hard to explain the internet to a Viking without saying harnessed lightning. It follows that the same will hold true for our far future. We have no way of knowing where humanity might be in a thousand years, and, based on our history, it is reasonable to assume that it will be literally beyond our current imagining. The game Warframe, released in 2013, takes this philosophy to heart. Digital Extreme's third-person looter-shooter is set in an unspecified but distant future in which all trace of the modern day has been lost to time. What history is known is that humanity managed to colonise and terraform all other planets in the solar system during a period of extreme technological progress called the Orokin Era. We can assume that the Orokin were an empire of humans or transhumans far enough in Earth's future to be unrecognisable to us today. The Orokin's own prowess eventually proved their downfall, as their empire fell almost overnight to their own creations, the Sentients. In some ways, the fall of the Orokin and the resulting loss of knowledge is similar to the fall of the Roman Empire and the subsequent Dark Ages. What Orokin technology remains in Warframe is often incomprehensible, valuable and powerful. While externally a fusion of white or grey ceramics and golden trim, 
The internals of Orokin devices are usually organic, including the titular warframes controlled by the players. The sentients are present in the game, as a species of sentient machines. Created by the Orokin to terraform the Tau system, they ultimately rebelled against their creators when they gained a degree of independence. Despite being completely artificial, the sentients display several traits unusually similar to those of living creatures. They appear organic, as if their symmetrical, geometric bodies were grown rather than built. Their remains appear to fossilise. The huge bones of a massive sentient have been excavated all across the plains of Eidolon area on Earth. Fragments of this sentient are still operational, but behave like wild animals, only emerging at night and communicating through roars and hisses. All these factors, from the warframes and towers to the sentients and infested, lead to a vision of the Orokin as masters of reality, able to manipulate the fabric of the universe on a whim. Under their rule, the volatile wasteland of Venus was terraformed into a freezing ice planet. Even their art is impossibly advanced, consisting of small sculptures of floating, moving, metallic components, powered by devices called Ayatan stars. Beautiful when inert, they are almost hypnotic when in motion, and seem, well, magical. And that is true with all aspects of Orokin technology. They all seem like magic. Whether it is the horrors of a virus that can spread through the inanimate, or the ability of a simple key to bring back the dead, the remnants of the Orokin bend what we know in our time as reality. Warframe is far from the only science fiction to follow Clark's law. The universe of Warhammer 40,000 is set in the far future, and as such has its fair share of advanced civilizations. The Eldari, a race of elf-like humanoids, can manipulate an extremely light and resilient material called wraithbone. Almost all their structures are grown from this wraithbone by a cast of builder musicians known as bone singers. Through specially designed instruments, bone singers can shape wraithbone using music and song, the material responding to the sounds like a dancer. Meanwhile, humanity in Warhammer 40,000 has an interesting relationship with technology, one that takes Clark's law almost literally. The Imperium is experiencing something of a technological dark age, with vast amounts of knowledge lost to fear and violence. As such, any technology from a time before the Imperium is considered advanced and sacred. The tech priests of the Adeptus Mechanicus practically worship such old technology, and their understanding of how to operate and maintain devices old and new is bound up in dogmatic rituals and tradition. If a gun jams or a vehicle breaks down, they set about appeasing its machine spirit through chants and rites. In truth, the actions a tech priest takes are simple maintenance, such as oiling joints or tightening screws, but they do not know this. To them, the machine spirit is fickle, and its wishes must be fulfilled to ensure that their sacred technology continues to function. Bungie's 2014 game Destiny and its 2017 sequel retain a similar idea of worshipping machines as deities. The mysterious Traveller is a spacefaring, city-sized device known to drift between planets, stopping to nurture species and grant them wondrous knowledge and abilities. It embodies and produces an otherworldly force known as Light, which is in direct opposition to the equally mysterious and ancient Darkness. Many enemies in the Destiny games are in some way corrupted by the darkness, most notably the skeletal hive, which go so far as to worship it and despise the Traveller. Meanwhile, the Guardians, or player characters, 
are given almost magical abilities by the Traveller to protect it from the darkness. This idea of a cosmic conflict between light and dark is a theme usually far more prevalent in fantasy than science fiction. The Awoken, a subspecies of human, are a throwback to the Collapse, in which some attempting to flee the war between light and dark were caught in the crossfire and transformed into something else. Their ethereal looks and isolationist nature hold similarities to elves common in fantasy, and such creatures were part of the developer's inspiration for the Awoken. Destiny shares another theme with Warframe, that of humanity experiencing a fall from grace. In Destiny's case, the time when the Traveller helped humanity spread across the solar system is known as the Golden Age, but it ended abruptly during the Collapse. Remnants from the Golden Age still exist, but are a mystery to most, including the Guardians themselves, who have been returned from the dead to protect the Traveller in its time of need. The robotic Exos, for instance, are fully sapient combat machines who were created during the Golden Age, but now even they know nothing of their origins. This view of a future which has regressed, and thus views older technology with superstition, can also be found in Mark Lawrence's 2012 book Prince of Thorns and its sequels. These books are set in a future Europe which has returned to a medieval political and technological state following a nuclear apocalypse. The protagonist, Jorg Ankrath, through exploring some of the most dangerous and forgotten areas of this world, finds tribes of monsters which are actually mutants from the radioactive fallout, able to call upon and resist devastating levels of fire. He meets necromancers, dream witches, and other such sorcerers, who are able to manipulate reality to their whims due to some catastrophic alteration of reality by the ancient builders, the name given to what the reader knows as modern people. Jorg even meets a ghost of a builder, a hologram of a man whose mind was transferred to a computer. As in Warframe, every aspect of this world is shaped by the shadows of greatness left by the builders, with even stainless steel taking on a mythical quality as builder steel, one of the finest and rarest materials a sword can be forged from. Video games aren't the only medium through which we can explore the future mythic. Paper and pencil role-playing games have been set in science fantasy worlds for years. Fassa's Shadow Run is set in a world subject to tides of magical energy following the Mayan cycles. As the new cycle begins, the arrival of Mana actively transforms our world into a neo-fantasyscape with cyberpunk technology. The RPG Equinox draws upon similar mythology, allowing technological generation of magical effects. One of the greatest future fantasy RPGs is Fading Suns, a futuristic passion play set in the far future where the civilization of the Second Republic has fallen, leaving the lordship of whole worlds in the hands of a bickering nobility. Reminiscent of medieval Europe, with a powerful church, it also has aliens, psychic powers, starships, and unfathomable ultratech. The legacy of an ancient builder race known as the Ur includes both the jump gates that connect human space as well as the enigmatic stone guardians that are said to bestow strange visions and quests upon those who encounter them. The RPG Sufficiently Advanced is even named after Clark's Law. It looks into the far future of mankind and asks what a future humanity might look like when the heart's desire can be achieved by simply wishing it. Revolving around a true knowledge economy, the player characters take on roles as investigators hunting copyright infringements. You can make your heart's desire come true with a thought, but that doesn't give you the right to summon someone else's design into being. In many ways, it's a utopian vision, 
where anything can be made through matter-energy replication. Rather than creating their own mythology, some works of fiction simply use existing mythology and bring it into a science fiction setting. Marvel's movie Thor, released in 2011, takes the Norse pantheon and sets them up as a species of superhumanly powerful and long-lived aliens called Asgardians. While extremely technologically advanced, they view their own science as magic. During Thor, The Dark World, released in 2013, human physicist Jane Foster talks with an Asgardian doctor about a medical device. The Asgardian calls it a soul forge, while Foster terms it a quantum field generator, though their descriptions of its function are identical. Asura's Wrath, released in 2012 by CyberConnect2, uses elements of Hindu and Buddhist mythologies and sets up gods, demigods and the like, as aliens travelling in great fleets of spacecraft. These approaches both align quite well with Clark's law. They take things once considered to be magic and turn them into sufficiently advanced technology. Some science fiction can bind itself in a desire to seem accurate or realistic according to contemporary scientific knowledge. But more and more games and books are remembering that, simply, we don't know what we don't know. As well as following Clark's third law, they seem to remember his first. When a distinguished but elderly scientist states something is possible, he is almost certainly right. When he states something is impossible, he is very probably wrong. Board Game Review, Res Arcana. Res Arcana is one of my favourite games of 2019. Based around a fantasy take on the medieval science of alchemy, it sees you gathering base elements to buy better equipment and artefacts and converting those materials into other elements, including the elusive gold. A competitive game for two to four players, Res Arcana falls into the category of engine builder, where added abilities grow over time and create combos. But it's in the components for building your engine which set Res Arcana apart from other games of this type, such as Terraforming Mars or Race for the Galaxy. Instead of a main deck from which you draw and discard cards, cycling through for the best new options, Res Arcana deals each player only eight cards, which are the only ones available to them for the duration of the game. Some players dislike this aspect, and it seemed odd to me at first, but after several games and considering different approaches, I found Res Arcana to be very clever. To begin with, you may study all eight cards at the beginning of the game. Rather than the mystery of drawing new cards and trying to make the best of the draw, here the player needs to carefully consider the whole deck they have been dealt, and work out the most efficient way of using those cards together. You start with only three, but you'll know what else is coming up in your deck. Planning and timing are key skills. It's easy to fear that you can end up with a deck which doesn't work well together. I have heard that many players house rule an optional mulligan, whereby you may burn your first deck and draw a new one, or even take it in turns to draft cards from a common deck between players, reducing the random chance. However, I've found that even with a seemingly incongruous deck, the cards are surprisingly well balanced and provide a route to victory. Any card can be placed back at the bottom of your deck, meaning they are never lost, in exchange for two basic elements or one gold. Thus, a player with several cards they do not wish to play will have a glut of resources if they choose to keep cycling those cards around. In addition, each player will have a unique power, linked to the character card they chose, as well as an additional power card which is different each round. Then, if you really need more powers which your deck doesn't provide, landmark cards often have abilities as well as victory points, assuming you can afford the price of four gold. 
It's a highly thematic game, using weird devices to manipulate the basic elements, which, in this game, are life, death, calm and elan. Although why these last two are not called water and fire, I have no idea, since those are what the pieces and cards clearly depict. The art is bright and fantastical, although not afraid of including some clever and well-hidden pop culture references in the imagery. Rezarkana plays fast, since each player only takes one action at a time, and it's rare that most players have passed while one player still has a lot to do. It's also incredibly clever how the choice of when to pass, indicating that you will take no further actions this round, is highly significant. The first player will begin the next round, and holds a temporary extra victory point, meaning that a win can be stolen by a player who simply chooses to pass at the right moment. Res Arcana even makes player versus player elements work in a game which is largely economy-based. Dragon cards not only allow abilities with special dragon icons to be activated, but can also attack all other players. Typically, a dragon attack will consume one specific resource from all players, or double if they have to pay the incorrect type. However, anti-dragon countermeasures are typically very cheap to acquire, and thus the player versus player interaction is largely a question of timing versus a very common detente. It's rather like chess. You can take your opponent's pieces, but is it a wise choice given all the other elements in play? In this case, players can negate potential dragon attacks simply by stocking up on the basic elements they target. I recommend Reza Arcana wholeheartedly. While the sticking point for many is the restricted choice of cards each game, I love the puzzle presented by having such a limited and often motley choice of components. A final mention has to go to the built-in storage for this game, which, in an industry often guilty of big empty boxes full of chaotic baggies, is a breath of fresh air for its effectiveness and pleasing form. The centrepiece is a pentangle-shaped storage tray which houses the game's five elements, turning what could have been a chaotic mess on the table into a thing of arcane beauty. Games Masterclass, Session Zero Games Masterclass continues our series of guides for Games Masters. This month, we run through an important but often overlooked step in setting up a new role-playing game. One of the hardest parts of running a successful campaign is the beginning. There's a lot to do. You need to start establishing the world you're using, getting the ball rolling on the plot, possibly teach players how the game works, and sometimes hardest of all, you need to get your players' characters together. And that's a huge amount of work to cram into one session, especially when you might also be ice-breaking, describing a part of your setting, preparing a play space, and hosting. Which is why over the last 20 years I've come to value what is commonly referred to as Session Zero. If Session One is where you start playing the game and beginning your story, then Session Zero is the prologue. Unlike a novel, however, the prologue isn't for story, though you might discuss some elements of that, it's for preparing the gaming group for the campaign. So what does Session Zero entail? We'll start by discussing some of the things you might want to include. Some of these might seem like lengthy topics or something that would require some thought after discussion, but don't worry. There's nothing stipulating that Session Zero can't be two or more sessions if required. This list also won't be exhaustive. Just some of the more common issues to discuss your group and your game may have different needs. 
For a start, it makes sense to do character creation during this session. This isn't going to work so well for a more drop-in style game, such as you might run at a local games shop, but if you have a set group, doing character creation together is often far more successful than asking your players to do it separately. This gives a chance for people to write each other's characters into their own, building relationships from the start, rather than trying to add these in post-creatively during the actual campaign. Some games, like Spirit of the Century or the Dresden Files, require it, but it's often a good idea, even if it isn't a strict requirement. We'll discuss this in more detail in a future issue. Perhaps there are character abilities that need to be ruled out, either because they're too powerful or perhaps simply don't fit the world you're using. I'd generally recommend not house-ruling anything until you're familiar with a game, but if you or one or more players is familiar with it, then these can be discussed as part of this. For games with many supplements containing lots of additional options, this is especially important, and some groups will choose to go core only to keep things simple and perhaps fairer. You can, of course, be more selective about what's excluded or changed. There may well be different feelings or experiences regarding this. How to settle these is something we'll talk more about later. Are you using your own world, a published one, or are you looking for player collaboration? For many, it'll be some combination of two of these, or even all three. It's important for the players to know which it is. If you're using a published world, your players may want to read up on parts of it. If it's of your own creation, they'll probably have some questions. And if you're looking for collaboration, perhaps they can even answer some of those. Some of this may tie into the earlier discussion around excluding character options. For example, a world that lacks gods probably also lacks clerics or divine magic. You need to consider and discuss the style of campaign you have in mind. Do you have a published adventure or a campaign that you want to run through? Or do you have your own story you want to tell with the player's help? Most games will be somewhere on the spectrum between a sandbox, where the games master only concerns themselves with adjudication and non-player character actions, and working step-by-step through a pre-planned narrative. It's important to have players that want the same thing. Some will hate the feeling of inevitability that adventure modules can create. Some will balk at the idea of setting their own goals and having to pursue them. Some will tell you that they prefer it and then sit and wait for you to lead them by the hand, finding the reality overwhelming. Knowing your player group can help. How do your players feel about player versus player action? More than many issues, this one can divide players. Some will balk at any conflict whereas some will resent any restriction on what they feel their character would do in a situation. If you're going to allow player-versus-player conflict, especially if it's agreed that it could escalate to violence, then you need to try and help make sure that in-character conflicts stay in character and be aware that the more powerful character, if their player is inclined, could hold disproportionate power when the table have agreed that fighting over disagreements is okay. On the other hand, at least it is a way to solve disagreements. Style of campaign and choice of setting can lead into talk of boundaries and ways to handle them, such as safety tools if your group's inclined to use them. Have you decided on a film rating for your campaign? You might know from previous experience that some of your players have topics that they don't want to go near, but you may need to ask. These can range from a hatred of spiders or clowns to more serious issues, 
Some of these may derail your plans. A plot involving giant spiders isn't likely to go down well with an arachnophobe, for example. It's also important to remember that players may not feel comfortable talking about some issues in public or at all, and nor should they have to if they don't want to. What matters is that you and your players know how to deal with problems if they come up. These discussions can be the most difficult to have, but can be the most important. Finally, session zero is also the perfect time to discuss social rules. For example, to sit around the table, which can encourage a more focused group, but makes it hard to move to talk to other characters. Or on the sofas, which is comfier, but my group sometimes get more distracted and I have to sit on the floor so that they can't see my notes. What about the use of mobile phones during the game, or how and when you prefer players to question a ruling? Because let's face it, they will. How is food and drink being sorted out? Some of these conversations with your players may be easy enough, but others may be difficult, and you may not be able to predict which is which. That will vary by group. In this writer's experience, there are a few things to keep in mind which can make the process easier. The most important of these is that at the end of the campaign, you probably want the people around the table to be your friends, and that it's important that everyone enjoys the game. I want to focus on that last one. It's important that everyone enjoys the game. The first part to remember of that is that you, as the games master, are part of the everybody that should be enjoying this. If, after all the discussions, you realise that you can't have fun with this combination of game and parameters, then you need to say something, not simply struggle through it because that's what your players want. That just leads to burnout and a poorer experience for everyone. If you've overseen building a team in business, then a lot of the advice here will seem very familiar because it's a very similar process. When you're holding session zero, you're building your team. Not the team within the game, although that may be part of it, but the team that'll be playing the game. Again, including you. You are a part of the team as well. You are setting ground rules, expectations and ways of behaving that the whole group agrees with and are comfortable with. The most important part of this is respect. You need to have a respect for the others around the table with you, as you're going to be responsible for each other's enjoyment for the foreseeable future, be that a handful of sessions or the next decade. Every idea and suggestion has merit, even if it isn't one that's carried forward. Nothing should be dismissed without consideration. It's probable that views will be split on some issues. This may be something minor, like who takes home and cares for the character sheets, or something more major, like the inclusion of sexual content. As Games Master, you have a privileged position, and to you falls the responsibility of mediating the negotiation. I don't say that lightly, because it's a negotiation between the people that disagree. Perhaps they can come to an agreement, or perhaps the group can decide that there's scope for both answers to be true. For example... You could keep most character sheets, but the one player adamant that they keep their own still can, and if they forget it, they know that's their problem. If no agreement can be reached, it's usually safer to exclude the problematic issue. Leaving something out will probably spoil someone's game far less than including it. To return to the sexual content example, leaving it out will probably not ruin the game for anyone, but including it when someone has explicitly said no will be more of a problem. At the end of it all, you may find that the group is incompatible. You may find that there's no way that the game can proceed, or you may get agreement that a few taster sessions should be run before the discussion is revisited. 
There's no harm in returning to these topics again if required, although they're usually better held in their own dedicated time rather than during actual play. Only if an urgent issue comes up that affects the immediate progress of the game should you stop play for discussion. Otherwise, carry on but stop early. Or put it at the start of the next session. In other words, dedicate time to it, rather than feeling you need to rush through it. If you do decide that the game can't go on, either initially or after a trial run, a decision needs to be reached, and how that happens will depend very much on your gaming environment and how long the campaign's anticipated to be. Perhaps there are other games going on and they change relatively frequently. If so, maybe it isn't an issue for one player to sit out and come back in a few months for the next game. The players may not be compatible with each other, or the game may not be a good fit for them. This can be easier to deal with, though difficult if only some players are dissatisfied. Those who are enjoying themselves may not even realise that there's a problem. Most of all, it's important that you're honest with yourself and your players, and you encourage them to be the same. People can change their minds about things, or misjudge their comfort levels, or what they think they'll enjoy. Being open and honest at these initial stages is vital, and you need to encourage that honesty throughout the campaign, because if there are problems, then the worst-case scenario for a GM is that you don't know about them. Session zero is the best time to establish this and get the ball rolling. Next month, we'll discuss Assembling the Party. The Star Wars prequels reassessed. Accepted wisdom among fans is that the original trilogy of Star Wars films is near perfect. The prequel trilogy is awful, and the Disney trilogy is patchy. In the wake of the rise of Skywalker, a revision may be in order. Since mid-December, this writer and some friends have been on a Star Wars rampage, watching the whole saga in chronological order. Having just finished The Return of the Jedi, he now feels that he spent quite a lot of time in a galaxy far, far away. This isn't going to be another article ranking the whole lot, because that isn't the point, and it's very subjective. But there is a consensus among fans that the prequel trilogy comprising The Phantom Menace, released in 1999, Attack of the Clones in 2002, and Revenge of the Sith, released in 2005, shouldn't have been made. The use of CGI over puppets and claymation, particular casting decisions, and the scope and tone of the plot have all been listed as ways in which George Lucas strayed from the formula that earned Star Wars its cultural standing alongside The Lord of the Rings. A friend described it most usefully. The original trilogy focused on adventure told through personal stories, while the prequels deal with political drama and a macro story of civilization change. Tonally, they are apparently very different. The appalling fan response to the prequel trilogy ruined the careers, and in cases, lives, of several members of the cast and permanently soured George Lucas on his own franchise. They are at least a part of the reason Lucas sold the brand to Disney in 2012. And The Phantom Menace in particular has been pinpointed as the moment at which fan enlightenment emerged as a powerful force in Western entertainment. I, I won't say we, as I certainly don't speak for the rest of the Parallel Worlds team, believe that this view of the prequel trilogy is overdue a revision. 
There is a reason for arguing this now, and that is The Rise of Skywalker, released last year. The Disney trilogy as a whole has made this question more pressing. We now know what happens when the fans get what they want. And the answer is endless montages of screaming TIE fighters and yawning Wookiees, superficial highlight reels referencing films gone by, devoid of coherency or heart. The Force Awakens was a shocking success when it was released in 2015, both critically and commercially. It delivered over $2 billion in box office revenues and sparked cautious optimism for the stewardship of Disney. The Last Jedi, directed by Ryan Johnson, went in a different direction. Critically successful, it holds a 91% fresh critical rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but divisive. The Rise of Skywalker struck this writer as a firm and cynical response to that dichotomy. Fine then, basement dwellers, it seemed to say. If all you want are endless callbacks to The Empire Strikes Back, that's what you'll bloody get. Director J.J. Abrams had seemingly decided that there was no point in bothering with nonsense like character development or original, consistent plot. The only way to keep the gargling masses happy was with mindless, nostalgic spectacle. Some have thoughtfully pointed out that the main faults with the Disney trilogy can be traced to the fact that there was not one clear narrative hand on the tiller throughout, with the different directors seemingly able to do what they wished plot-wise. J.J. Abrams bookended the trilogy with Johnson directing the middle one. The original three films each had a different director too, but they managed to broadly tell a consistent story. The key difference is that George Lucas was there to make sure that all the bits lined up. This is why opinions of the prequel trilogy are due a revision. While the change in tone isn't for everyone, the story it tells, the tragic tale of Anakin Skywalker and the subsumption of the Galactic Republic into an evil empire, is a consistent, densely plotted space opera in three acts. The high politics it focuses on might not be for everyone, and it's undoubtedly a change in direction, but is that a terrible thing? This writer enjoyed seeing the little-by-little little way democracy can be traduced, and George Lucas can be forgiven for assuming that at least some of his fans were interested in the world he created and wanted more to chew on. The dialogue and the script come into the crosshairs, too, and here the prequels are more difficult to defend. But is that so anomalous for Star Wars? Watch A New Hope and tell me the script is better. Leia's awkward... I knew you weren't just about the money, as she hugs Han Solo after the destruction of the Death Star, is a classic example of awkward characterization shoehorned in where it wasn't needed. The ceaseless, old buddy, we're such good friends, honest, between Han Solo and Lando Calrissian in The Return of Jedi feels painfully forced, too. The characters in the prequels are a mixed bag as well. Hayden Christensen as Anakin seems more petulant than tragic or threatening, and I have yet to meet a single person who didn't hate Jar Jar Binks, although groupthink could explain that. But Liam Neeson's Qui-Gon Jinn is undoubtedly one of the franchise's best Jedi, and Ian McDiarmid as Emperor Palpatine is skin-crawlingly watchable. It's true that the CGI of the prequels has aged poorly. With hindsight, they're 
emblematic of the awkward adolescence of the technology rather than its maturity, but they undoubtedly allowed Lucas to tell a bigger story than he had been able to previously, and contained some spectacular vistas. Another consistent criticism is the unbelievability of Anakin's fall from grace. Here I think the arrow strikes closer to the mark. He isn't tempted by the dark side so much as tricked into thinking it can save his wife. Which means that when it doesn't save her, his, oh well, guess I'm a Sith now, feels less coherent. But is this any sillier or less believable than the rest of the series? Palpatine goading Rey to kill him in The Rise of Skywalker in order to make her a Sith is at least as nonsensical. Not least because she does exactly that with no ill effect seconds later. In short, it's time we reassessed. The prequel trilogies were not the unmitigated dumpster fires they were remembered as. For viewers who care about such fripperies as plot, they have a lot to give. And the rest of the franchise is far from flawless or consistent. For my money, The Empire Strikes Back is easily the best, with good twists, interesting characters, and a quirky romance. But the final hour of The Revenge of the Sith isn't far behind. As the dominoes fall with heart-wrenching finality one by one, as we know they must. Personal preference is everything with art, as films undoubtedly are. So an objective assessment of whether something is good or not is impossible and facile. The closest we can come is a sort of consensus of preference. But fashion and the sense of the time, the German word zeitgeist, play a part too. In the 80s, a binary good versus evil was king. Think the Dark Crystal's cherubic gelflings and the pantomime evil of the Skeksis. The original Star Wars trilogy epitomizes this. In fact, the cuddly Ewoks, mild peril, and Han Solo's awkward humor in Return of the Jedi put that film closer in tone to a family caper like Gremlins or The Goonies, in my view, than a toothsome epic like The Empire Strikes Back. For at least a dozen or so years, this style of storytelling has been out of fashion in Western cinema. These days, it's all about tortured backstories, morally ambivalent anti-heroes, and dark themes. In this light, it's possible to view the ongoing debate of the future of Star Wars as a discussion of whether or not the franchise should be updated to reflect today's trends. The more thoughtful examination of ends versus means in Rogue One shows that this can work, but there's a virtue to the argument that not everything should follow the whims of fashion. John Carpenter's The Thing received universal criticism when it was first released in 1982, a critical and commercial reaction that shaped the director's career. However, in the last 20 years or so, audiences' and critics' opinions have been revised, and The Thing is now considered one of the best horror films of all time. Audiences and critics can be wrong, and opinions can mellow. I urge you to go back and watch The Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. And if that doesn't convince you, watch The Rise of Skywalker. Book Review, A Savage Generation Stories about dystopian futures caused by a zombie apocalypse are quite common. A number of these make their way onto Amazon to feed the bloodthirsty appetite of zombie fan readers. 
For the most part, they tend to share a set of tropes and archetypal ideas. Some sort of virus has transformed human beings into flesh-hungry animals who hunt the remaining uninfected survivors as food and to spread their infection. A Savage Generation by David Tallerman begins in a similar vein to many contemporary zombie novels, although the author refrains from using the obvious phrase. The use of multiple perspectives in the first few chapters, telling seemingly disparate stories, is a device often used to establish the worldwide nature of the epidemic. Present tense third person also gives us a sense of now, and potentially a sense of shallowness, but these concerns prove to be unfounded here. Talaman is not following these tropes, as gradually these stories converge around Funland, the survivor kingdom in a prison ruled by convict Plan John. When Ben Zelensky arrives at Funland's gates with his girlfriend Carlita and his son Kyle, the careful truce between Doyle Johnson, the last effective prison guard, and Plan John begins to collapse. The ensuing events reveal truths about the virus and the survivors. Perhaps these zombies aren't as mindless as they seem. Talaman's cast of characters all have their flaws and weaknesses, and the author explores and exploits them carefully. Doyle's relationship with his son Austin is strained, but this relationship still proves a weakness for Doyle. Ben's selfish nature puts both Carlita and Kyle in jeopardy, and Plan John's competitiveness causes him to make mistakes when confronting Doyle. The way in which these individuals are depicted ensures that the conflicts between them do not resolve as simply and predictably as you might think. This, in part, is down to the author's clever use of perspective to undermine the strength of some of the characters. Doyle, in particular, is plagued with self-doubt, but through the other characters we only see taciturn and stoic strength. Similarly, the story does not follow an anticipated arc. Some plot elements are resolved long before the end, and events are not limited to the claustrophobic setting of Funland. The title of A Savage Generation could be applied to the survivors as well as their monstrous adversaries, as Doyle, Ben, Carlita, Austin, and the rest are all forced to make terrible decisions and live with the consequences. How they cope with those is an essential part of this book, and what raises this novel from being just another zombie story. Talaman also uses his cast to explore some of the bigger questions facing humanity in this kind of apocalypse. What does happen after the initial threat starts to die down? How do we know if the infected, the sickers, are intelligent or not? There are some answers and enough uncertainty to provide a little tempered hope amidst the savagery, although maybe not enough for most of the cast. A Savage Generation is an excellent and thoughtful read for zombie story fans, a well-written novel with believable characters that makes you think a little harder about what you might need to do when the world falls apart. Interview, Anna Smith-Spark. Anna is voiced by Sarah Golding. Anna Smith-Spark is the author of the critically acclaimed multi-award shortlisted Empires of Dust, grimdark epic fantasy series The Court of Broken Knives, The Tower of Living and Dying, and The House of Sacrifice. She is published by Harper Voyager in the UK and Orbit in the US. Welcome to Parallel Worlds, Anna. Your writing has been described as grimdark fantasy. You've been asked what is grimdark before, but what makes it distinct from other dark fantasy? Grimdark for me is fantasy with a strong element of political complexity and self-awareness. Romance, wonder, beauty, yes, obviously, that yearning for impossible far-off distant things, but 
also a strong sense of what that romanticism is and where it can lead. The awareness of the world as a brutal, ugly, amoral place, intellectual complexity, the interrogation of power structures of justifications for violence. When someone says they're a good ruler, they will save us from evil. What does that mean? The simple notion of good versus evil is vastly problematic, but it's equally problematic to say that all things are truly relative, that good and evil don't exist. If fantasy is the great genre of power and of myth-making, grimdark fantasy interrogates power, tears apart the myths. My writing has been described as nihilistic. It is, but there's a strong political hope in nihilism. If one believes the world is fundamentally good and positive, there's little impetus to change it. If one is suspicious of the world, one is less likely to accept a lie. I think dark fantasy is sometimes used as more a literary term to mean something similar, grimdark being seen as a negative term. It was originally coined as an insult. Or perhaps some dark fantasy is less politically nuanced. The violence and the horror and sex is ramped up, but ultimately the warrior hero uncomplicatedly wins. Why do you write grimdark? Do you think the darker end of the fantasy genre still has popular appeal when real life can seem quite dark? I can't help but write it. I write what I see, what I feel, what I find beautiful. The great myth stories that I grew up loving, that I'm writing fanfic to, the Iliad, the Idas, the Tain, they're dark and terrifying and strange and bleak and absurdly, impossibly beautiful. I may have something of a gothic imagination. I think that Grimdark is more important than ever as a way of questioning political authority, interrogating what political power structures and political decisions mean. If one person reads the chain of dogs sections of Ericsson's Dead House Gated, for example, and maybe takes from that some vague hint of what life might be like as a refugee fleeing from bombings in Syria and Yemen, they may feel a little more compassion for people trying desperately to get away to Europe as a result. But sadly, I do understand why people are turning away from reading and watching darker things, going back to narratives that offer a more obviously optimistic view of good as overcoming in the end. I yearn for Aragorn to offer us something to fight for, even as I rage against how problematic any unquestioning faith in leadership and good versus evil might be. How do real-world politics influence your work? It's impossible not to write politically. Writing is articulating the world around you. It's inherently massively political. I love high fantasy, but as may be obvious from the above, I have huge political issues with it, which I don't think I realised until recently were perhaps not shared by everyone. The story of a glorious, shining hero with special talents and bloodline who will save his people from overwhelming, vile, unnatural evil and give them hope and freedom. I think I've heard that before, in history lessons or recently on the national news. See, fantasy retells great myths that have always legitimised the trumps of the world. That's what those great stories I love are at least in part, and what their purpose always was. But equally, they also critique it. Their stories retold and reframed endlessly, filled with multiple meanings, used by the elite to legitimise their rule and the people to negotiate with and undermine that. So, 
fantasy inevitably engages with politics. I am very aware of that, always have been. It's one of the things I love about fantasy. In fact, that ambiguity, that engagement. Your writing's very flowing and visually evocative. When you write, do you hear the words in your head or picture the scene which you then write? I hear them and I see it. It's absolutely real to me. I can see the whole book, every tiny detail, the whole scope of the world. I can see all of that in my mind and I'm trying to grasp it and write it down right. It feels like I'm staring at a picture and I've got a few seconds to describe it or like someone's dictating and I've got to copy their words down as they speak or like I'm doing an exam I've revised for until I have the answer word for word but now in this moment I have to get it exactly right. I can see it and feel it. I look up from the writing and I'm shocked I'm not there. I write half to be read aloud. It's not a conscious style thing, simply that a lot of the literature I'm influenced by was, is, written to be performed. The cadence and the rhythm, the aural sense that's created, is as important as the plot. How the words sound make you feel is a way of conveying what the story is about. I want you to see it, taste it, feel it, smell it. How do you feel about representation in fiction? Do you see yourself in your own characters or in other people's work? All my characters are me. Parts of me. Marith and Thalia in particular have been with me always, live in me. It's very strange, in fact, now that their story is told, like a part of me is told and gone. I think I'm trying to answer this question in two different ways at once. One, as a reader, devouring books and seeing elements of myself in any number of characters without necessarily having anything in common with them except that. I felt somehow they would understand me, or be like me if I could meet them. Or that I saw the world like them. Jed in a Wizard of Earthsea. Johnny in Johnny the Homicidal Maniac. The chap in the shadow over Innsmouth. Until I was shocked to realise a few years ago that he's overcome with horror. Not delight when he discovers he's part fish. (laughs) And that's the wonder of reading. The totally different alien other lives that one can live. So far apart from anything in one's own possible experience. Two, as a dark-haired part Chinese woman who has Asperger's, there aren't that many characters who remotely resemble me. No. And when there are, they're inevitably bad, bad women who come to a bad, bad end. I'm never the heroine who gets the prince, saves the world and lives happily ever after. I'm always the satanic, half-naked, half-mad, evil seductress and dark lord sidekick. Which explains so much. I am not objective, per se. I'm just saying that maybe it would be nice to be able to survive to the end and save the world occasionally while slinking around half-naked doing exotic things with knives and snakes. In particular, how do you feel about the representation of disabled people in fiction? I'm Asperger's dyslexic and dyspraxic, with mental health issues arising from late diagnosis of all the above. So, yes, representation of disabled people is a big thing for me. What really makes me angry is the use of disability as a metaphor for victimhood and suffering. People in fiction can't just have a disability and get on with being alive. 
So often their struggle with disability is their whole story arc. Take the brainy, physically disabled warrior's son trope, for example. His dad hates him for being a failure because he's not a great swordsman like his ancestors. He can never be king because his people despise him for his physical weakness. He's so ashamed of what he is. But one day, after much suffering and rejection, our unlikely hero will overcome his self-hatred, prove to the world he's not a failure, and finally forgive his father for being ashamed of him. One. Yes, that's a very nice illustration of how brute strength isn't always the answer. And yes, it's a very nice metaphor for teenage angst and estrangement and not fitting in. Except that disability is normal, boring, daily life for a lot of people. Not a useful way of talking about other stuff. True. Because actually, really, life for people with disabilities isn't like that. And never has been. 99 times out of 100, someone's family loves them, supports them. Their disability is just another part of family life. Probably far less of a thing than a lot of other family life stuff. People didn't generally expose their disabled children or lock them up or hate them or all that rubbish. They just got on with everything, living their lives. And maybe it is tougher at times than for other people, but that's called life. And most people with disabilities don't spend their whole time feeling crushed by their disability, hating themselves and those around them, burdened by shame and envy, trying valiantly to overcome. I guess at times having a disability is tough. That's why it's called a disability. I hate that whole, it's not a disability, it's a superpower narrative too. It's patronising rubbish. But we're not outcasts and victims. We're just people in all the myriad ways of human life. See, what I want in fiction is more characters whose disability is simply a part of them. I don't want Harry Motter and his heroic struggle to be accepted into wizard school, despite being in a wheelchair and it's all so hard and everyone laughs at him, but he knows he can do it in the end and overcome his tragedy and show them he's as good as them. Just want Harry Motter in his wheelchair, having adventures, battling evil and hanging out with his friends and we just assume magic school has got ramps and accessible loos. I mean that's hardly a big ask, is it? Especially in epic fantasy. I mean most of the cast of an epic fantasy will realistically be in constant crippling physical pain by midway through book two. Several quite possibly missing an eye or even a limb. So write it as normal, because disability is At events and conventions, your shoes have become quite a talking point. How do you feel about that? And which is your favourite pair? The shoes thing is getting slightly out of control. I think there are more photos of my feet on social media than my face. It gets a bit bizarre. I walk into a room and everyone looks at my shoes. Or, heartbreakingly, or at least ego-breakingly, someone will come running up to me at a convention, really excited, I'll think, oh my god, a fan! And they'll be telling me what cool shoes I have. I had the most bizarre thing at Worldcon Dublin when I was talking to Stephen Erickson, and someone rushed up, virtually shoving him out of the way to tell me what great shoes I had on. I looked a bit surprised. My favourite pair are the Shoes of Broken Knives. No heel, high heels. They're cantilevered. Covered in metal spikes. They're made from the broken blades of Marath's enemies. <laughs> Google Anna Smithspark shoes. What do you love about being an author, and what do you hate? 
being a published author is an incredible thing. It astonishes me beyond words when someone comes up and says they enjoy my books. I was asked to sign a book as a birthday gift for someone's partner recently, which was mind-blowing. If I ever stop feeling that exhilaration about being published, that's when I will stop writing for publication. The worst thing, I suppose, and this is pretty much the definition of first world problems, is the fear that I can't write anymore. That Empires of Dust was a fluke, and I'll never write anything that good again. What are you reading now? What authors have you found recently that you'd recommend? I'm rereading Moorcock's The History of the Rune Staff, as are several people I know. It's beautiful. So high fantasy it hurts. <laughs> Completely insane. And the Dark Empire is Grand Britain, under a grotesque, inhumane emperor, and the commander of his armies, the Duke of Croydon. The hero is German, the heroine French. No reason why lots of people are reading it at the moment, obviously. Uh, two current authors I have to recommend are Michael R. Fletcher, my very good friend, partner in crime over at Grimdark magazine, and one of the authors I admire the most. His books are Grimdark splatterpunk fantasy and sanity. He takes narrative to places I wouldn't dream of. He has the most perfectly cynical yet totally humane and romantic understanding of the abyss of human life. Also, his battle scenes are brilliant, and Sam Hawke, whose debut novel City of Lies won every award Australia could give her last year. It's exactly what you would want in modern, non-grimdark secondary world fantasy. Immersive world building, a great fantasy city, action and intrigue, beautifully written. It had those touches that make it special, transport you to her world and make you want to just wander there for a while, like the... like the perfectly written extracts from a pharmacopoeia that open every chapter, that make you yearn to read a whole book about the city's natural history. Science fiction and fantasy as travel writing is something I talk about a lot. I, I want to visit these places, wander in them, study their history, their botany, architecture, literature, and Sam really brings that across. What's your favourite film? Mm, David Lynch's Dune. Visually astonishing, a hugely rich experience. I love the use of music and voiceovers, the vast scope of it. I, I enjoyed the books, obviously, but the film, oh, something else. Just don't watch it thinking of it as a straight adaptation of the book. I also love Time Bandits. I've seen it a huge number of times. It gets better and stranger every time I watch it. The scene with Napoleon is the most perfect evocation of war and power. The scene with Agamemnon gripped me when I was a child and had a huge impact on my aesthetic sense. I mean, you can certainly see elements of that scene in my writing. And The Thin Red Line, which is the most beautiful, haunting, cinematic poem to the horrors and beauty of war. A film that I love that I think also influenced me greatly, but which I don't think is easily available, is Michael Mann's The Keep. It's a World War II horror film set in the Carpathians. Again, visually and aurally stunning. The soundtracks by uh, Tangerine Dream. And some very powerful discussion of war and morality. The hero is an anti-fascist German officer, caught totally between his disgust at what he's doing and his lifelong commitment to his military career and his country. What games do you play? 
Oh, I used to be an obsessive D&D, but if I went back to it now, I'd have no time to write. It would take over all my spare time. I played for two years at university and lived it. We were all in the same house, basically living our daily lives as our characters. I played a chaotic, neutral, evil tiefling princess with a charisma 30, obviously. The high point of the whole game, possibly of my life, was when she seduced a non-player character who turned out to be Nyla Thortep. I've never played tabletop, but I love the miniatures. I'm obsessed with Warhammer 40,000's Plague Marines. My brother had a Warhammer Goblin army, and I spent many happy hours in Branches of Games workshop and reading White Dwarf. I recently had custom-made figures of Marith and Talia done. It was glorious creating them and now having them sitting in my mantelpiece. What advice would you give a new author starting out? Ooh, keep going. <laughs> the only advice anyone can give. Everyone can start a novel. Hell, many people have started multiple novels. Finishing it, that's hard. I, there will be days you'd rather gnaw your own arm off than write. There will be days you feel such revulsion at what you've written you want to take a cricket bat to your computer. There will be days you have no idea what should happen next, but keep on. It's like anything. Exercise, learning a language, studying for a degree, quitting smoking. Keep on at it. And don't spend ages fretting over the perfect first chapter. Write the book to the end. It might be the most rubbish book ever written, but you will have finished a book, which is more than most people can say. You can then rewrite it, fine-tune it, scrap it, and start again. But if it ceases to be enjoyable at all, if you realise you'd read the thought of writing and it's painful, stop. If writing isn't fundamentally pleasurable, even in some weird masochistic way like fell running is, then stop. Life is short. And also, if you're not enjoying it, it's likely no one else will. Writing has to be a pleasure, something you find gives you a sense of happiness and pride in yourself. Also, write when you can. In short bursts, in a notebook, on your bus journey into work, for just half an hour after you get home from work, if you don't have any more time. And I wrote The Court of Broken Knives while working and looking after a toddler. I didn't have days of silence in which to do nothing but write. And there are days when I have no time to write at all. Days when I only snatch an hour or so in two short chunks. The saddest thing I ever heard about writing was someone saying they wanted to write a novel but felt they'd need to wait until they retired to have the time. If you want to write, it's almost painful not to be able to. Just half an hour a day can build to a story if you keep thinking about it when you're not writing. My dad has a sign by his desk. You must write as if your life depended on it. Frosthaven, the new game from Cephalofair. Isaac is voiced by Karim Cronfley. Friend of Parallel Worlds, Isaac Childress is at it again. Not content with the barnstorming success of Gloomhaven, this month he's crowdfunding a new game, Frosthaven. We caught up with him to find out what it's all about. Hi Isaac, thanks for stopping by. Okay, so let's jump straight in. Give us the pitch on Frosthaven. Frosthaven is the giant sequel to Gloomhaven. It will feature the same core gameplay, 
running into dungeons, using ability cards to perform actions, fighting automated monsters, and trying not to become exhausted in the process. But it will be an entirely new campaign of over 100 scenarios, with 16 new character classes, over 30 new monster types, and over 100 new items. It will also feature a host of new mechanics like crafting, town building, and a calendar of seasons. So how does it relate to Gloomhaven? Can you carry adventuring parties and characters over from one to the other? The story is set not long after the events of Gloomhaven, maybe a year or two. It is a sequel, but it's more like a Marvel Cinematic Universe sequel. The Thor to Gloomhaven's Iron Man. You don't have to be familiar with the Gloomhaven story to enjoy this game, as the events stand entirely on their own. If you have played Gloomhaven, though, you will spot some connections and be able to pick up on a couple of loose threads. Because it is a whole new game, though, it does require a new adventuring party. Will there be a backward compatible element, let's say taking new characters from Frosthaven back into your Gloomhaven games? Yes, character classes are backwards and forwards compatible. You can use classes from Gloomhaven in Frosthaven, and you can use Frosthaven classes in Gloomhaven. You'll also have access to items you've unlocked in Gloomhaven on a limited basis, and some monsters from Gloomhaven will carry over into the new game, including everyone's favourite, oozes we'll be introducing new battle goals that are also backwards compatible, and you can mix them up with the original game's battle goals if you'd like to. Also, there'll be a new set of random dungeon cards that combine with the old set. Lots of compatible stuff. Let's be honest. Gloomhaven was one massive box of stuff. How will Frosthaven compare in terms of the number and types of components? We're shooting for something of a similar size and scope, maybe even a little bigger with the new mechanics that are being added. But yeah, with all those characters and monsters and quests, we're definitely looking at something on that scale. There'll be a lot more sticker sheets too, with all the buildings that you can construct in town. A lot of them will be locked at the start and hidden in envelopes, so there will be a lot of those too. We are also featuring lots of new map tiles with different shapes and new terrain types. There's an outdoor snowy terrain, and then also a dark metallic terrain type used for mysterious purposes. We like the sound of mysterious purposes. You're taking this out to Kickstarter, so we guess there will be the opportunity to unlock extra contents to go in the box. Can you tell us a little about your intentions for stretch goals? We've actually decided to not do stretch goals for this project. Stretch goals certainly make sense in a lot of cases because of the economy of scale. The more people who back your game, the cheaper you can manufacture it for. So the more money you have to throw toward extras. When you get up into printing tens of thousands of copies, which is what we're looking at from the start, the scale drops off. So, rather than manufacture the thrill of stretch goals and hold additions to the game hostage behind arbitrary numbers, we are just committed to putting every single good thing into the box from the start. And we're going to have a good time during the Kickstarter with all sorts of exciting announcements. Guest designers, contests, other cool stuff. And other community participation events. You have released a supplement that expanded the original Gloomhaven. So why change direction and release a whole new game instead of an expanding line of supplements? Well, Frosthaven has actually been planned since long before Forgotten Circles came onto the scene. Gloomhaven has always been my vision of giving people everything they would ever need to play a big, epic game, no expansion necessary. I wasn't ever interested in nickel and diming people on an extended line of smaller supplementary products. Gloomhaven was it. And then, Frosthaven would be the next giant thing once you were done with that. What I realised, though, was that people were getting through Gloomhaven far faster than I expected. 
and there was a certain level of hardcore fan clamouring for something else. That's when Marcel, the designer of Forgotten Circles, came to me with his idea. So I let him run with it. Forgotten Circles was meant to just tie people over until the Frosthaven came along. Are you doing something with Frosthaven that you couldn't do with Gloomhaven? Cephalofair Games has definitely learnt a lot of things in the past four years. We've gained a lot of experience, a lot of contacts, and frankly, a much bigger budget to work with. So in terms of what I couldn't do with Gloomhaven, that is the main thing. Just using all those things we've gained to make a higher quality product. Higher quality art, higher quality writing, higher quality miniatures. I also had to limit the scope of Gloomhaven somewhat, just in terms of what I could feasibly do in a reasonable amount of time. But I can also now widen the scope for this project. That is why we've brought in town building and crafting. Two things that enhance any role-playing game they're added to. Who have you got doing the artwork for the project? Alexander Elichev is still the main artist for the game, as he was for Gloomhaven. He did the box art, all the character and monster portraits, as well as items and resources. We've also brought on Francesca Berold to do the maps and stickers for us, and they are truly phenomenal. And David Demeret is doing the scenario map tile artwork. Josh McDowell is doing most of the preliminary graphic design on the project for us, though we will probably end up using a number of great graphic designers in the end. You mentioned a calendar of seasons. How will that affect gameplay? Yes, it is mainly tied to seasonal specific events, but many things can be limited by the season, so that certain scenarios are only accessible in summer or have extra penalties in winter. That's all I will say, though. Gloomhaven has had a spin-off and cross-platforms into the realm of computer gaming. Have you any plans to do this with Frosthaven? Yes. We are talking with Asmodee Digital and Flaming Fowl about Frosthaven as well. The basic dream is that any content created for the board game will eventually make its way to the digital platform as well. We are big fans of Gloomhaven, and we're now really excited by the direction that Frosthaven has taken. Can you tell us how long we're going to have to wait to get a massive box through our door? We're looking at early 2021 for delivery. The plan is to finish up development and get all the files to the printer by the end of September this year. And then, of course, go through the long process of proofing all the files, making sure everything's executed correctly, then printing and shipping, which all takes a significant amount of time. Wow, that's a lot to be thinking about. Do you have a go-live date for the Kickstarter? We'll be launching March 24th at noon EST. So I hope everyone comes and enjoys the wild ride that will ensue. Book Review Shadows in the Stone Historical fantasy is a bridge between the escapism of speculative fiction and the realism of literary fiction. And Jack Dan's Shadows in the Stone is an enthralling example of what historical fantasy looks like when done well. The novel takes place in what we would recognise as Renaissance Italy, but with a twist. In this universe, the beliefs of a little-known religious ideology called Gnosticism are actually true, and traditional Judeo-Christian understandings of the world are turned on their head or transformed altogether. Each chapter begins with citations from fictional Gnostic texts, which set the stage with an air of mysticism and cosmic importance. By way of comparison, one might think of this story as similar to Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, drawing from some of the same sources and inspirations. The story's philosophy is not strictly Gnostic, drawing from Dan's imagination in ample measure. Still, it is abundantly clear that he's done his research to create a believable world. 
As an example of this unusual world building, the story's antagonist is the being we would call Jehovah, except in this universe, Jehovah is a kind of fallen angel called the Demiurge, or Yaldabaoth, an entity of malevolent purpose who created the material world in his wicked image. The god of supreme power, or the invisible spirit, is a non-actor in this world, largely leaving humanity to its fate without intervention. Traditional Christians worship Jehovah, but a select few understand the real nature of the cosmos and are morally obligated to resist Jehovah and his assembled forces. This world includes many familiar elements, such as the American Civil War, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Vatican and the Templars, but uses them in unexpected ways to create a world that is not quite the same as ours. It all feels just alien enough to set us free from the expectations of our reality and engage with an epic cosmic struggle. What we might perceive as divine is shown to be nefarious, and what we think of as evil is actually a force for good. Dan's ability to capture this sensation of otherworldliness is impressive. Leading us through this mind-bending voyage are our protagonists, Lucien, Ben, Hanania, and Louisa Morgan. Lucien is raised as part of the Essene clan, dedicated to keeping the Gnostic documents secret and safe before an attack on his clan forces him to flee the home of his youth and come to Italy. Several years later, he finds himself drawn into the celestial battle alongside the angel Gabriel, standing against the forces of Jehovah. He is aided by the historical figure known as Pico della Mirandola, a combination scholar, philosopher and wizard who has his own reasons to resist the religious orders of the day and help Lucian explore his power. Luisa, in complete contrast to Lucian, is a girl out of time and space. She hails from the bloody battlefields of the American Civil War, in the midst of a naval battle between Confederate and Union forces, she is hoisted away by celestial forces, compelled by destiny to assume her role as a representative of the Gnostic Supreme Mother, Sophia. She winds up halfway across the world, struggling to understand her place in the entirely different war taking place in Renaissance Italy. The story rotates between her perspective and Lucian's, among others, as they navigate both the oppressive institutions of the material world and the supernatural forces that want nothing more than to grind hope and goodness into fine powder and bring about an age of eternal evil. Their battlegrounds range from the streets of Florence and other European cities to an airship fueled by a collection of dead souls to celestial hellscapes. The final conflict encompasses all of these settings and more, with a conclusion that is so epic in its scope and yet so personal in its impact that it feels like the story the Christian Bible never finished telling. Side characters throughout the book are complex and three-dimensional enough to get the impression that each could be the subject of their own story, without detracting from the protagonists. Such characters are woven through the whole narrative, such as the hero's guiding light, the Archangel Gabriel, who bears the faint scent of cinnamon. Other characters are less touched on but still interesting and human, such as a Confederate ship captain named Major Dunian, who helps Louisa escape from the Union attack early in the story and receives a callback at the end. This is a world that feels lived in and vibrant, even as we see it devoured by ghostly, twisted vines that drain the life force from hapless human victims and ravaged by demons that inflict horrible torture upon the characters. Throughout the book, the narrative is elevated by Dunn's voice as a writer honed over a long career as a writer, editor, and teacher. He has mastered the art of being cryptic without descending into meaninglessness, of surprising the reader without resorting to cheap tricks, and telling a cosmic story that still centres around very believable people. That said, the book is a complex text that may be difficult for casual readers of fiction, speculative or otherwise. 
Dunn's narrative is both vivid and intelligent in ample measure, but not fine-tuned for the modern reader's easy comprehension. The language is not quite archaic, and the cast of characters is vast and diverse enough that the book includes a list at the beginning. The story's bent towards a kind of spirituality and otherworldliness goes beyond what we readers of speculative fiction are used to from typical science fiction and fantasy fare. Those without an understanding of the novel's historical and religious contexts might find themselves lost or disconnected. Still, for those readers willing to invest the time and energy, Shadows in the Stone is a tale that will cause them to ask questions about our own world we had never considered before. Pixelated Honours. Exploring video game achievements. You're playing a game, and all of a sudden, a little box pops up. Congratulations, you've hit an achievement. You're one fraction of a percent closer to 100% completion. Nonsense frippery, or compelling structural innovation? This month, we explore the modern phenomenon of video game achievements. 1982 was quite the year, apparently. Blade Runner, The Thing, and Conan the Barbarian all hit the screen. The Falklands War ground on, and a now familiar company called Activision began a trend that has become a mainstay of video game structure and culture. In that bygone age, gaming was still in a sort of primordial state, and many of the conventions that we take for granted today were still being formed. Every game came with a physical manual, a sort of artefact that modern games issue in favour of online wikis and forum discussions. Activision's manuals for games like Dragster and Pitfall contained a proposition that other companies didn't immediately cotton on to. A number of high scores were featured in every manual, with instructions to take a picture as proof should the player manage to beat one of these scores and mail it in to Activision, who would, in return, send a sewable fabric patch, much like those used by various scout organisations, to denote the player's ability to beat what was considered a nigh-impossible score by the developers themselves. This system of patches was a clear forerunner to the video game achievements of today. But whereas modern achievements are handed out freely as the player progresses through the game, these original patches were only gained and won by an elite cadre of players. Fast forward to 1990, and the Amiga game E-Motion included what can now be considered the first truly electronic achievements. Termed secret bonuses, the game had five of them that could be scored through completely disregarding the rules of the game or finishing levels through difficult and obtuse tactics. This would set the theme of video game achievements for decades afterwards, with certain legendary game badges only claimed by 1% or less of the game's fanbase. While the 90s saw a few more examples of secret bonuses and proto-achievements, it was the Gamerscore system for the Xbox 360 that truly birthed the modern achievement as we know it. Introduced in 2005, Gamerscore applied custom achievements to all games available on the 360 and also awarded players points for completing them. A similar system was implemented in Valve's Steam Marketplace, including detailed statistics about each achievement. Players could gain a certain satisfaction in knowing that they'd gained mastery over the game by scoring every one. A succession of story-based achievements served to mark the player's progress through the game's central plot. Steam achievements are awarded for everything from completing a game's tutorial to defeating a final boss in a preternaturally fast time. There are few rules as to what constitutes an achievement. They reward mere engagement as well as recognise high skill. Some of these achievements seem to be based more on luck than skill alone. The Halo games, in particular, included a punishing set of criteria for one of their achievements, 
rather than the more typical fare such as complete every level on max difficulty or accomplish a specific feat in under a minute. In Halo 2, the player must complete the whole single-player campaign in a mere three hours. What complicates this even further is the amount of randomly generated difficulty in the campaign. Enemies spawn in random locations with random accuracy and random damage on their weapons. Attempting to complete this challenge on legendary difficulty has proved to be an exercise in frustration. Achievements can be used creatively or even subversively. In the famous game Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater, a certain boss can only be killed before their boss fight if the player is quick enough or be made to die of old age by turning the system clock forward a week or simply not playing for a week. In The Stanley Parable, a slightly surreal game that seems to parody regular achievement structure, there's an achievement for quitting the game and opening it again, and another one that can only be achieved by not playing the game for five years. A good deal of The Stanley Parable seems to be devoted to figuring out ways to exploit the achievements and indeed the structure of the game itself. Modern gaming has been defined by achievements, to the point where a game without any is considered strange or even incomplete. Achievements help set the pacing of games with storylines and formalise the skills acquired for those that do not. They tie fans together and provide shared experiences, and there's still that elite cadre, even today, who hold to their names some of the most punishingly difficult achievements ever put into code. Some people even delete their save files and score every achievement again if they like the game enough. While researching this article, this writer wasn't able to find a single modern game that didn't have achievements. So why are video game achievements so compelling? Simple gamification is probably at play, the well-recognised phenomenon by which engagement is encouraged through frequent rewards and high audiovisual feedback. This idea has been applied in many spheres, including management, and is a powerful way to drive engagement with a system. Some Steam achievements can seem so petty, such as an achievement for completing character creation, for example, that it's difficult not to attribute cynical motive to their inclusion. Are achievements used to pad otherwise trite or brief gaming experiences? They are now a decidedly meta-phenomenon, often awarded and recorded outside the game itself for display on a user's digital profile. Many achievements involve a level of repeated engagement with the same content, a phenomenon known in gaming as grinding. A pop-up rewarding you for playing through the same area several times delivers the same tiny dopamine hit as the reward for the first playthrough. But it doesn't cost the developers any more time or effort. Like emojis and selfies, video game achievements are the sort of odd little quirk of digital life that few would have predicted and are easy to disparage but they hold powerful sway over gamers who use them to mark their progress and show off their experiences. It's likely they're here to stay. Know your community. D&D fantasy art. Glenn is voiced by Kai Zen. In this series, we get to know the communities, both online and off, dedicated to celebrating science fiction and fantasy around the world. This month... We got to know Glenn Welsh from D&D Fantasy Art, a Facebook-based group of role players and artists with over 40,000 members. Hey there, Glenn. Thanks for talking to us. When did the group start and how? I started the page about 18 months ago. 
I was looking for a place where artists could show off their work and, more importantly, one that allowed people to offer and request commissions, something that wasn't a common practice on other Dungeons & Dragon pages. How has the group grown? Has it been a recent explosion of members or a gradual increase over time? The group started slowly. After about six months, we had maybe a thousand members being generous. Then artists started showing up in large numbers, often several hundred a day. In less than a year, we went from a thousand members to over 30,000 members, and we didn't stop there. Well-known artists from various gaming companies started posting up their own works for commission. And now, even game companies requesting artists for hire aren't uncommon. The large numbers were brought on largely by the fact that we allow people to sell their art. In fact, we encourage it. Because we have more requests than available artists, the members of the board are quite supportive of each other. Is the group geographically dispersed, or are most members from certain regions? I haven't looked at our demographics, but I do know that most of our members are American, followed by Europeans. But we have members from across the globe, with large numbers coming from Asia, South America, and Australia. Your page is crazy busy. People seem to post new incredible artwork all the time. Is it a lot of work to manage? Does it require a lot of moderation? Yes, it quickly grew too big to manage by myself. A few friends volunteered, but again, the numbers grew immense. The page is, for the most part, well-behaved. We do have to follow the various Facebook rules that they tend to spring on us unannounced, but flame wars and flare-ups are thankfully rare. I believe we have nine moderators right now. We tend to expand every 10,000 members. Our D&D players... A naturally artistic bunch, do you think? You have to be. You're creating characters from your own imagination. A huge number of our artists fell in love with the art of Boris, Frank, Elmore, Caldwell, Parkinson, and many more classic artists, and it inspired them to pick up a pencil. We have a small but noticeable group on the page that are visual artists. Uh, they are driven to paint miniatures and design costumes, all inspired by the game they play. Do you play a lot of D&D or other role-playing games? Are there other systems you enjoy? I'm a bit famous for my gaming, being the author of things Mr. Welch can no longer do in an RPG. I've probably played close to a hundred different role-playing games. I run a fifth edition group for my girlfriend's daughter, set in the classic settings of Mistara. I've had long-running campaigns for Cyberpunk, Star Wars D6, Seventh Sea, Deadlands, Paranoia, Aeon Trinity, Rogue Trader, and dozens more that would take up too much space to mention. Do you find that the same names pop up on the page all the time, or do a wide range of people contribute? I've noticed the artists tend to draw cyclically. They post up a lot of art trying to get commissions, and then the commissions arrive and they take time off to finish those commissions. Then somebody else steps forward and posts up art for review. We have artists that have been with us since day one, who we've got thousands of different artists that have posted up their works. Do you organize events or competitions for members? We have two contests that the page sponsors, though the reward is mostly free advertising for the winning artist. 
Granted, from the amount of traffic the page generates, that free advertising tends to bring in a decent amount of work for the winner. Every two weeks we have the Featured Artist Contest, where, in theory, a little-known official D&D character is drawn by various artists to see the new takes on older characters. The character last selected was Xanathar, but we've had characters from all sorts of other settings, with Dragonlance getting the lion's share of the contests. We don't have many members of the Fellowship of the Lance left to do. The other contest is the Banner Contest that occurs when we get another 10,000 members. This is a much more intense contest because the art becomes the first art you see when you log on to the page, so the artist becomes the face of the page for months on end. So far the banners have been Morgan Ironwolf, the Lady of Pain, and lastly, Fafford and the Grey Mauser. Have you organized any offline activities or meetups for our members? We don't do anything offline. Our membership is too spread out and our moderators come from every part of the globe. If I was able to make it to the larger conventions, I might be able to have an official event, however. Do you have anything on the horizon you can tell us about? We're looking at a few things to do when we hit 50,000 members. It's strange being one of the largest D&D communities on Facebook and largely without much effort. The page just happened. People were happy with the unique options we gave them and told their friends. We make people money and that makes them happy. We might do a charity fundraiser, but we're still deciding on an appropriate cause. Original Fiction, The Stranger I feel the water fork between my fingers. It bites into my fresh wounds. Red water overflows into the basin beneath me as I clean myself. It is a cycle. You bleed, then you wash, then you bleed again. That's how this world works now. Nobody's clean. I size up the man in front of me. I call him the stranger. He provides me with entertaining conversations now and then. He'll crack a few jokes, though they always fail to make me laugh. He talks about himself, talks about his family, how he misses them. Sometimes I want to kill him. Sometimes it's to put him out of his misery. Other times uh, it's because I can't stand being around him. But then something always stops me. The stranger laughs. He knows I can't kill him. He picks up the scissors and hacks at the corpse of coppery tangled hair on his chin. Says he hasn't looked this rough since his time backpacking across Europe in his gap year. That's where he met his wife. I tell him he's an idiot for digging out the past. The past is for the dead. Focus on the now. The shimmering silver jaws snap shut again and again, and I watch pieces of the stranger fall into the bloody sink. Next comes the razor. I never liked shaving. The razor rubs against my tanning skin, rough like aged leather. Somebody knocks on my hotel door. I ignore it and continue to shave. Again the rhythmic thumping. Martha, get the door, I command. No response. Martha? The scissors are in my hand. I am cautious and quietly open the washroom door. The room is silent. Empty suitcases rest at the foot of the king-size bed, sheets crumpled. Clothes, dirtied and discarded on the floor, creating a Frankenstein rug draped across the sun-bleached carpet. 
On the chest of drawers rests a double-barreled shotgun I acquired on one of my runs, back when there were still people to do runs with. Next to it is an organised stack of ammunition. Same for the shotgun, and some for the Colt 1911 hanging from my belt. Another thud at the door. I move with light footsteps. Hey, Martha, do you think it's room service? I rest my hand on the lever and flick it open, feeling the warm Orlando air sweep through my hair. The sun beats upon my face. I see nothing but blinding golden light and a figure swaying in its brilliant silhouette. If I was religious, I might believe I was meeting God. But this is not God. I am not a religious man. The shadow of a cloud brings clarity. I smell infection and rot. The thing lurks in front of me, an embodiment of putrefaction. It wears stained white trousers hanging loosely on gaunt legs. Its faded floral shirt is ripped and bloodied, revealing icy skin beneath. I see wet, shredded flesh covered in teeth marks on its shoulder, a bloated stomach with black veins climbing past tendons hanging from the neck. Its mouth drips with crimson. Its jaw widens and the flaps of skin pull back, revealing desiccated meat. It lunges at me with broken fingers and crooked teeth, snarling like a beast wearing the face of a man. I'm quicker. The scissors find a home in its brittle skull. I mince the blade in its brain, and grey matter leaks from the wound, staining the walls and the door. Then it falls, yellowed blood pooling on the carpet. It lies at my feet, dead, or as dead as dead things get. My foot is under its chest, and I kick it onto its back. Something glistens in the sunlight. Black writing etched on a gold tag. It reads... Charles. He worked at the resort. Sorry about that, Charles. You seem like a nice guy. I grab him by the collar of his putrid shirt. It's like grabbing a water balloon. I heave him over the balcony railing, with effort, reminding me of how I used to lift my children over my shoulders as we ran down to the beaches with glee. The body hits the ground with a splash as the liquefied organs spill onto the courtyard below. I tell Martha I'll be heading out. I don't know what time I'll be back, or if I'll be back at all. I make sure to read the kids a bedtime story before they doze off. I never want them to leave their room and risk. The stranger tries to not think about that part. I see him wipe the tears from his eyes. He can't afford to show weakness. Not now. He closes the door behind me. The room is quiet now. The America the stranger had visited a year ago was a maze of gridlocked cars and loud, unbearable lights, a roadblock of cars and crowds relaxing on the beaches. Now the cars are empty coffins filled with abandoned memories, photo albums and children's toys. They'd already been scavenged. I should know because I picked them clean. I feel the sun pound my back, wearing the heat like a coat. The plaza of the hotel is laid with wide decorative tiles and tall, spiralling marble pillars, some now chipped, cracked, and corroded with age. I've had to use thick wooden boards to reinforce the glass doors that shattered in the early days. My car is parked out front, a Corvette whose colour, tyres and parts are all wearing thin. The engine groans with a repeated splutter, an innocent cough that masks something fouler. Finally, the car pulled out of the car park, and I'm on the road. I see a few of the monsters lumber out of nearby buildings, eager for fresh meat, 
waking to the roar of the engine. I am a blur in the wind. It has been too long since I put my foot down. They follow behind with lethargic steps, each one sizzling on the tarmac. There's a type of freedom in the end of the world. The idea of driving into the horizon and never looking back. Something awakens me from my daydream. It catches my eye and I hit the brakes hard. The car whines and the smell of burnt rubber fills the air. I'm staring at it, wide-eyed, mouth agape. His alabaster skin seems so out of place for Florida, let alone the monsters that limp close behind. What's more, he doesn't limp. He runs at full sprint. The stranger sitting in the back leans forward with the same look on his face. We lock eyes in the rearview mirror. That's a... The stranger begins, his mouth dry. A human, I finish, swallowing hard. He's a shorter, stocky young man. He wears a white polo shirt, stained yellow at the collar and under the arms, and shorts revealing legs with fine hairs matted by sweat. His trainers are worn from running. Greased black hair, his nose is stumpy and bends upwards, and he seems to wheeze with every breath. With each step he takes, his feet drag a little further. They're going to catch him, the stranger comments. We are like spectators at a blood sport. I bet he'd make quite a meal for them, I chuckle. He isn't as amused. We have to help him. No, we don't. We'd be putting ourselves in danger. If you die, who's going to be there to look after your family? That shuts him up for a moment. We sit in silence, watching the violence unfurl beyond the windscreen. It reminds me of kicking my feet up on my armchair back home, watching television while the children play at my feet. Home. It's probably a pile of ruins by now. I wonder what happened to everyone, he finally mutters. Back home. You know what happened. Gets kind of lonely, though. The stranger leans forward and presses against the horn before sinking back into his seat. It rings out shrilly through the streets. My eyes meet the running man, and, with renewed vigour, he sprints towards the car. I turn to the stranger, but all I see is an empty seat. More monsters shamble out of the alleyway like the dam has finally burst. They pour out, composed of bloody mouths and rotting skin. The man makes it to the passenger door. I unlock the passenger door and he dives in. Seat belt on, we drive back the other way. The second the horde falls out of my rearview mirror, my Colt 1911 is out. He's on the wrong end. He reaches for something in his belt. I rip the hammer back. Don't think about it, I warn. Please, don't shoot me. That depends. Slowly reach for your weapon. Throw it out the window. He hesitates at first, then realises he doesn't have a fighting chance. He lowers the window and tosses the hunk of metal. It bounces across the road. The man seems to value his life. Who are you with? I ask, stowing my weapon. What? Your group. Don't lie to me and say you've made it out here on your own. I... I was with my boyfriend. He went out to gather supplies a couple of days ago. We were supposed to meet back there, but he never showed up. He's probably dead. I probably shouldn't have said that. The silence grew uncomfortable. I'd... I'd hope someone shot him. It'd be worse if he turned. What he says pulls at my heart. I finally get a good look at him. Speckled hair protruding from his chin. His voice cracks and whimpers. He's just a kid. 
What's your name? Miles, sir. Sir? That's a good start, Miles. If you don't mind me asking, sir, your accent. You aren't from around here? You'd be right. I begin. Then bite my tongue. I shouldn't talk to him. I should play friendly. How long has it been since I've had stimulating conversation with someone other than myself? I stare out into the road, more things crawling out from their holes. I came here with my family. I'm sorry. His eyes are downcast. Sorry? What for? I live with them. Oh, right. I just assumed. What are their names? Well, there's Martha, my wife, Cassie, my oldest, and little Johnny Jr. You have a baby. There was a glint in his eye. I used to. I look at him. I mean, not like that. He's just older now. That must be horrible, growing up in all this. He turns to the passenger window, lost in the children's park across the street. The astroturf is the only thing in the area that's kept its colour. The monkey bars are rusted and bent, the slide pooling with foul liquid. The links are broken on the swings. We drive past them before we get a proper look. It's for the best. When we are far enough away, the car slows to a halt. Why are we stopping? His voice trembles with worry. I'm going back to my family. I'll drop you off here. Go find your boyfriend. What? No, wait a second. You can't make me go out there. We both know that I can. I pat my holster. You wouldn't. You've got to help me find him. Not happening. Now get out. Please. Miles, I like you. But if you follow me, I will kill you. My hand coils around the grip. I glance in the rearview mirror again. The stranger stares at me with sympathetic eyes. No, you won't, he whispers. I'll give you half our supplies. Whatever he's found, I'll give you my half. Hey, there's something, the stranger chimes in. Since we've come up with Jack, I weigh up my options. The thought of something other than the hotel's short supply of canned food makes me salivate. The things were much simpler when a waiter would take your order for whatever you liked. Do the right thing. And help the kid out, the stranger pleads. I relent. Where was he going? He points past the windscreen to the small collection of whitewashed towers that stand against the coast. He used to work there. In the hotel. You're kidding, right? That's where he said he'd be going. Why? Well, that just so happens to be where I'm held up. His voice explodes with hope. Really? You must have seen him. I can't say that I have. I lie. The hotel is pretty big. Lots of floors and rooms I haven't explored, and I don't want to. The place is swarming with those fuckers. We've got to go get him. Make sure he's okay. Last thing I'm doing is having you drag behind me. If he's anything like you, he's already a goner. Best move on. The stranger, eyes heavy with care, looks at the husk of the boy, lip quivering and eyes wet. I tell him, Emotions make you vulnerable, and you can't be vulnerable now. Not any more. It doesn't sink in. All I see is a lost boy, sick with love and hurt. Look, Miles, if we're doing this, you stick to me and you stick close. I'm not giving you a weapon because, frankly, I just don't trust you. We'll head back up to my room and grab some supplies. I want to nip this in the bud before it gets dark. We drive in silence the rest of the way the horizon consuming the sun, bathing the land in orange. 
We walked briskly across the courtyard, hurrying into the shadows of the hotel. Bodies litter the floor, disformed by protruding bones, the liquid remains of organs staining the stone. I look back to see Miles waver with each shaky step. If I knew I was having guests, I might have tidied up a bit, I mentioned dryly, and am disappointed when it elicits no reaction from him. He stands still now, pale-faced. It's as though he'd seen a ghost. He coughs, trying to dislodge the words from his throat. Did you... did you do this? I have a lot of free time. Any time I can kill them, I don't hesitate. I guide him through the hotel. He doesn't say much, mostly commenting on the makeshift cowtrops that line the floor, fashioned from broken furniture and nails. We ascend the concrete stairs and out onto the landing five floors up, finally reaching my room. I unlock the door and we step inside. Miles gags and heaves on the carpet. Miles, what the hell? I jump back. What's that smell? It's disgusting. He struggles to catch his breath. I don't smell anything. Look, go sit yourself in the corner over there whilst I grab my things. The room is exactly how I left it. The same mess scattered across the floor, the shotgun resting against the drawers. Except now, home feels foreign to me. Where are your family? Martha's probably playing with the kids in the other room. I'm going to grab my things. Do you mind if I clean myself up? Not paying much attention, I point vaguely behind me. Sure, just beyond that door. I set to work on preparing a pack, collecting ammunition and a flashlight. You know, Miles, the stranger begins, once we find your buddy, how about you stick on with me? I don't hate that idea either. Perhaps the stranger longs for a new friend. I can't say I blame him. His family isn't much for conversation. Jesus! Miles leaps out of the room, the room my family is in. The smell erupts from the dimly lit chamber. Fleeting rays of light dance through the drawn curtains, revealing the remains of a woman chained to a bedpost. Miles, wait! What the hell is that? Its growls filled the air, sniffing the fresh meat before it. It rises against its chains, the bed pounding the wall as it struggles to break free. Quiet down, Martha, I roar. Christ, that's your wife? You kept that thing alive? Listen to me, Miles. I tried to compose myself. Just close the door. I'll forget all of this. We'll go find your friend. I can't believe you're keeping that thing here. Miles, please close the door. I promise you we will find your boyfriend. We'll find him together. Just close the door, I plead. He draws something from his back before I have time to react, and I find myself staring down the mouth of a gun barrel. My hands instinctively retreat from my belt. Tears are streaming down the young man's face. He's dead. I saw his body out in the courtyard. You killed him, didn't you? Miles, I... I stammer. I'm sorry, but he was like that long before I found him. I told you this place isn't safe. He must have come in a different way. He just got unlucky. Unlucky? You're keeping your wife, that thing, alive. It's sick. Don't you realise what they've done? They've ruined our lives. We're all fucked now because of them, and you're... And you're... Keeping it like a pet, chained up and rotting in this room. You should put a bullet in it, just like the rest. That's what you said, wasn't it? You don't hesitate to put them down. Miles, please don't do this. I'm begging you. I lost everything. Not everything. He turns his weapon to the doorway. I move like a blur, 
two muzzle flashes echo each other. I am rooted to the spot, not knowing if my shot in the dark found its target. A moment passes, then another, a thud against the floor, then silence. I rush for the doorway. I flick the switch and the light fills the room. Out of the corner of my eye I notice a hand, but I dare not turn to confirm what I already know to be true. I'm sorry, is all I can manage. I hear knocking against the wall, the rhythmic siren call that draws me to her. Sitting on the bed, her arms chained to its wooden post, sits my wife. Her golden hair is faded and molting. Those blue eyes I fell in love with are sludge in hollow sockets. Her dress, first worn when we all went to the beach, is the only thing about her that seems to have remained clean. Her lips have been torn away from her mouth, revealing broken shards of teeth. She lunges at me, pulling at her chains. The skin around her wrist has flayed, revealing bone that grinds against the metal cuffs. But there's no sign of fresh injury, no gunshot wound. Thank goodness you're all right, she growls. You're not looking so good. I try to stroke her hair. She snaps at me and I pull away. How are the kids? I ask her. I look across the room to the two other beds. White shrouds cover two small mounds. I'm sorry, Martha. I shouldn't have left you alone. If only I hadn't left the door unlocked. Maybe then. I tail off, not knowing what to say. I met someone today, can you believe it? Another person. His name's Miles. He's a quiet kid, but he's got a good heart. I can tell. I... She growls louder, her mouth close to my face, eager to bite. I rise and leave the room, plunging it back into darkness. I go to wash up. I look at the stranger in the mirror. He's quiet. Playing 9 to 5. Job simulators. While sports and action games tend to get the most publicity, there's a genre of video game that can rack up the kind of playtime and fan loyalty that any AAA game would kill for. The simulation game is generally a type of game that simulates, to varying degrees, aspects of real life or real activities. Simulation games date back to the mid-1980s, and the category is surprisingly broad. Most sports and racing franchises like FIFA, NBA or F1 are simulation games, though most players don't think of them that way. Similarly, a tactical shooter like Armour 3 might be considered a battle simulation, even though most people would think of it and similar games as more first-person shooters. Games like Anno 2070 or Cities Skylines deal with building and managing cities, even though there's very little correlation between the actual activities in the game and any aspect of city governance in real life. To muddy the waters further, many games bearing the title Simulation often stray into fantastical or speculative territory, like Stardew Valley, Kerbal Space Program, or Deliver Us the Moon. The particular slice of the simulation game genre we're going to explore here is much narrower. Video games that are lovingly crafted simulations of real jobs and real activities. Specifically, the more mundane, everyday professions, rather than the cool sports star or ace fighter pilot professions. We're talking real jobs, simulated. A long time ago, a game called Shenmue on the Sega Dreamcast featured a level of world detail that was pretty astounding for the time. 
Late in the game, the protagonist, Ryo, needs cash, so he gets a job driving a forklift truck at a warehouse. All the player does is literally move boxes from one place to another. A friend still refers to Shenmue as that game where you worked at a warehouse. Fable 2 featured a range of jobs you could do to earn rewards and levels, like wood chopping or blacksmithing, even though those were relatively short and mostly involved pressing a button in time. And many, many games feature fishing or hunting in some variation as side activities within the main framework of the game. Job Simulator, in this case, doesn't include these type of mini-games within a larger game, or the more whimsical titles like Bossa Studios' Surgeon Simulator, a hilarious game where you try to perform surgery on a live patient in a very unstable environment using bonkers controls, a sort of modern twist on the board game operation. Flight sims, where you can pilot near-perfect recreations of real-world aircraft across stunning landscapes, could also count as job simulators, but are excluded because many people are interested in flying aircraft for fun. This arguably includes the subgenre of spaceflight sims, in which your main role is having the job of being a space pilot, like the X and Elite franchises. Really, who doesn't want to be a space pilot? Many games that fall into the general category of job simulators are what might be considered aspirational or maybe desirable professions or activities. For the majority of players, being a pilot or racing car driver in real life isn't on the cards, or at least it's as likely as my professional Pokemon trainer career taking off. Most of us will never have the opportunity to plan, build and manage a city or pan for gold in the Yukon. While these are certainly jobs, they're not what you might call average jobs, activities or careers that are within reach of most of us. However, that leaves plenty in the strange world of games that simulate, often in excruciating detail, elements of normal jobs and more routine activities. The highest rated simulation game on Steam right now is SCS Software's Euro Truck Simulator 2, released in 2012. This brilliant and strange game attempts to create a high-fidelity simulation of actually driving a truck around Europe. Those of you that aren't up on the game might be thinking of something like Grand Theft Auto, where you're ploughing through civilians and handbrake turning your 16-wheeler around corners while dodging the fuzz. It's not that. The objective here is to drive well, within the law, and safely arrive at your destination. Other games that are jobs in real life include Farming Simulation, the main example of which is cunningly titled Farming Simulator. Much like the trucking version, this one has you doing daily farming tasks like driving a combine harvester across fields, driving a tractor fertilising crops, and various other vehicular farm-related activities. In almost every entry into the job simulator category, the environments are rendered in high detail and the vehicles and equipment themselves have been lovingly recreated, often named and badged with licence from the real-world manufacturers. It's clear from even a quick browse at screenshots that these aren't intended as jokes or comedy entries like Goat Simulator or Grass Simulator. These are carefully made games by dedicated developers and played by people that genuinely enjoy them, and who often seem surprised by their own enjoyment. Why do these games exist? More than that, why are they so popular with players? If you take a look through the Steam reviews, some words crop up over and over again. Extremely relaxing and interesting being the main ones for Euro Truck Simulator 2, with an overwhelmingly positive 197,000 reviews. The American version, American Truck Simulator, has a very positive 34,000 reviews. 
Farming Simulator 19 is slightly different. While there are certainly nods towards it being a relaxing and engaging game, most reviews seem to focus on the surprisingly engrossing technical aspects of farming and farm machinery. Interestingly, the reviews here often compare Farming Simulator to previous versions, indicating that many players are loyally buying successive games in the series. PC Building Simulator has a very positive 14,000 ratings. The game itself appears to be exactly what you'd expect, but comments show that players use it for both fun and education. Many reviews echo this one from May 2019. This game showed me the ropes of building a PC. A thousand real dollars, some very important lessons learned, and several days of my life later, I've actually built my own PC in real life. This game inspired me, taught me, introduced me to a real-life benchmark program, and now allows my fantasies to run wild with dream PC possibilities. If you're a techie kind of person, and like to play simulator games, get this game. 10 out of 10. For most people, doing DIY and housework is a bit of a chore. But Empyrean, the makers of 2018's House Flipper, have clearly realised that pretty much everyone loves the idea of renovating and redecorating. It's only the depressing reality of the actual work and cost that tends to put a damper on the experience. House Flipper has you buying a cheap house in terrible condition and single-handedly renovating it. This includes some aspects of a Sims-like experience, but grounds it in a first-person viewpoint and has you physically knocking down walls, painting, rewiring and even cleaning up afterwards. In every way, it's a simulation of many of the jobs you'd actually do if you were flipping a house. It's gained over 17,000 positive reviews on Steam and sold as many as 1 million units. Speaking of cleaning up, RuneStorm developed the surprisingly enjoyable game Viscera Cleanup Detail back in 2015, apparently tapping into the same part of the brain as House Flipper. You play a janitor who has to clean up after various action horror film style events, using the game physics engine to physically pick up the corpses and scrub the floors of all the blood and gore. The objective is to restore the room to pristine condition, and often it can take a long, long time to do so. Ironically, about the same amount of time it takes to actually hoover real floors and do the real washing up. Obviously, job simulator games are not for everyone, and definitely not something you're likely to ever see in the top 10 charts at Asda. But in an era when most games have more complex button combinations than your average SpaceX rocket launch, it's perhaps nice to kick back and gently drive across a non-exploding road to somewhere, or carefully assemble a detailed piece of machinery. There's a strange serenity in making a neat turn in your tractor and nailing that perfect row. Both Euro Truck Simulator 2 and Farming Simulator 19 are, by anyone's standard, extremely successful games, having sold over 5 million and 4 million copies respectively. To put this into perspective, Call of Duty Black Ops 4 reportedly sold just over 17 million units. Both franchises have spawned sequels and updates, as well as gaining thousands of positive ratings on Steam and high scores in the gaming press. Video games continue to offer surprising ways to entertain us. One of the interesting things that a game like Farming Simulator shows us is that as more and more people live in urbanised areas, there's an interest in learning about and experiencing rural lifestyles, even if it's virtually. Similarly, given the opportunity to competitively shoot people in the face or drive racing cars, Many people are choosing instead to drive trains or deliver packages. There's no specific power fantasy involved with farming, driving a delivery truck 
mopping and cleaning, carefully restoring a house or building a PC. They are mundane tasks that most of us can do with ease. Anyone who can play Euro Truck can theoretically play any other type of game they choose, so people are choosing and enjoying games that simulate real life in various ways. Maybe there's a commentary in there about how, if given the choice, many people would actually enjoy cleaning, cooking, delivering things or making things, but due to financial reasons or lack of confidence, or being exhausted after a hard day's working a job they don't like much, or just the practicality of location, they haven't been able to do the things they'd really enjoy in real life. In utopian visions of the future, like Star Trek, it's easy to wonder who does all the mundane jobs like cooking and cleaning, and why anyone would do normal jobs without pay. Well, perhaps they are the same kinds of people that do them for fun now. Mini of the Month, The Bard of Allahan. Twilight was falling as Aldrich arrived at the large coaching inn. The Bisa Road was foamed and nervous, its mind skittish and slippery with fear. He grasped the bridle tightly as he deposited a coin in the offered hand of the stable boy, who eyed him warily. He entered the taproom of the gilded lily, a long space, well furnished with wooden boards underfoot, not packed earth and sawdust as was so often the case. Travellers sat in groups, drinking or consuming an evening meal. Aldrich's senses were only dimly aware of the odours that hung in the air, but the pulse of life sent a flicker of excitement through him. A hot blaze burned in the grate at the far end of the room, where in rapt attention sat a group of children and a few elders. A man in a robe paused to take a swig from a foaming tankard before continuing his story. In a hushed voice, he told a haunted tale, some story of the lost duchy. Despite the hubbub of conversation, his quiet voice carried clearly across the long room. With bony fingers, he plucked a note on his lute to emphasise the sadness of the tale. Shadows danced and flickered as his audience gasped and drew closer. My lord? Aldrich turned to the barmaid who addressed him, his height casting his shadow across her. She shivered with sudden cold and drew a breath. Okay. Ale. My throat is dry from long travels. Right you are. She scurried to obey. He wouldn't drink it. That was not why he was in this place. I see you carry your father's sword. Aldrich turned to see the storyteller standing next to him. He had not felt the movement of his approach and turned confused, and was shocked to see the man still perched in the corner telling his tale. He was both over there and right by Aldrich's side. They will not see. My illusion is quite convincing. The storyteller indicated himself across the room by the fire. What do you want, wizard? Only to help you, Aldrich. You have carried your burden too long. Your father has long passed, and now your grand-nephew has taken the mantle of your noble house. But without your father's sword, there are those who question his legitimacy. What should I care of the boy? You do care, or your steps would not have brought you back. You have been gone a long time, my lord. I am here to help you. Help you to return what you once lost in life, found in death, and must return to its rightful place, to break the curse upon you. I must return to Cadwallon. Aldrich dipped his head as he considered the bard wizard's words. 
This very night, my lord. Come, my retinue will form an escort. I first encountered Confrontation in 2004, a little-known French game produced by Rackham. Initially, it was the beauty and quality of the sculpts that attracted my attention, but the game had many lovely details that set it apart from other fantasy games of the time, despite some rather ropey translations in the rulebooks. Each blister pack came with a number of models, some card tokens, wound markers or spell markers, a stat card and a miniature rulebook. Yes, a tiny little rulebook in the blister pack. In all, there were five mini rulebooks. Confrontation detailed the basic game mechanics and was packed with most troops. Incantation and Divination added rules for arcane and divine spell users respectively. Incarnation added special rules for heroes and quests. And finally, Fortification added rules for war machines. Eventually, Rackham collected and expanded these mini-rulebooks into Confrontation 3rd Edition and further expanded the world of Arklash with Ragnarok, containing rules for massed battles and Cudwallon, a role-playing game. Unfortunately, Rackham lost its way in 2006, making an ill-fated switch from artisan miniatures to pre-painted plastic, which saw its die-hard collectors abandon it. I believe that Sons de Tour are trying to revive the game and original miniatures line. I wish them every success. Book Review The Man in the Dark The sequel to Jonathan Whitelaw's 2018 novel Hellcorp, The Man in the Dark, finds the devil still unable to take his holiday. As in Hellcorp, the devil is tasked by God with solving a crime to earn some time off, although this time it is a kidnapping rather than a murder. Finding himself stuck on earth in the body of one of the prime suspects in the case, the devil has his work cut out for him, convincing DS Laurie he is who he says he is. But while the cat is away, the mice of hell will play, as the infamous Roman traitors Brutus and Cassius start taking matters of the afterlife into their own hands. For a book dealing with the creator of the universe and the incarnate of evil, Hellcorp felt lightweight in elements of demonstrating the ancient, supernatural nature of God and the devil. The devil notably seemed rather squeamish, lacklustre lord of darkness, almost entirely disconnected from human affairs. He is unable to read, he has never even seen a dead body before, and doesn't seem to understand that simply telling people he is the devil won't make them believe him. However, The Man in the Dark handles its eponymous anti-hero far better. While still clueless about a few elements of human interaction, the devil feels more, well, devilish. His inhuman nature is able to shine through as increasingly unnatural things begin to happen to and around him, and his lack of knowledge about more mundane matters is beautifully evident in the first chapter, where he is so caught up in his own frustrations he fails to notice that the Pope is dead. However, there are a few issues with the man in the dark, mostly in the editing department. The novel feels like it could have done with one more read-through just to polish and refine a few rough edges with regards to grammar and sentence flow. Hellcorp had similar minor problems, and while they don't detract from the plot, they do leave the reader feeling almost disappointed that such consistently small niggles weren't picked up on. Aside from this, the only other downside is a tendency to tell rather than show, notably with the riots in London a few chapters in. Nevertheless, the dynamic between the devil and God is one of the best parts of the book. While they don't agree on much, it is clear that they enjoy their conversations, even if they would never admit to each other or themselves. 
Some of the devil's most compelling scenes are the ones he spends with other characters, the strongest of which is with Matilda, Laurie's daughter. This short scene sees the devil and Matilda watching cartoons at midnight, and is undoubtedly one of the book's high points. Overall, The Man in the Dark is a fun foray into a theological what-if scenario. It's a book that doesn't demand much of the reader, instead asking them to just let go and have a bit of fun, because that's certainly what it's doing. Pokemon. The Weird and the Wonderful. Pokemon is one of the most successful franchises in the world. Everyone is familiar with Pokemon Go, the catchy mobile game that turned people of all ages into fans. The franchise, across its iterations of anime, video games and card games, depicts a utopian sci-fi universe with some surprisingly dark facets. Imagine you're a child in the Pokemon world of Galar. Every preteen dreams of one thing, the day they bind a semi-sapient monster to their will and venture out into the wild to enslave other such creatures and pit them against each other in fights. Forget reading books or attending school. The best education is attained through directing psionic warfare, fiery explosions and tidal waves. And who better to explore such things than children? Being a Pokemon trainer is a noble pursuit. For one thing, you'll be providing some much-needed stimulation to the world's economy, all of which is based around assisting trainers in their endeavours. Almost every town has only a single shop which is dedicated to catching, maintaining and bettering a trainer's Pokemon. There are no grocery stores, few restaurants and no government infrastructure whatsoever. What there are, though, are organisations like the Pokemon League, which hosts incredibly popular contests between gym leaders and challengers in massive stadiums complete with ritual chants from the audience. There is, after all, no more entertaining use for a stadium than to grow bizarre creatures to titanic size and then have them explode the world around them in ways that, somehow, never result in death. Except when they do. It's unclear. Death exists, we think. There's a Pokemon tower with graves in it. Strange adults will be eager to help you on your journey. They approach children at random, offering them candy and expecting nothing in return. In this world, the best things in life can be plucked straight off the ground. Foragers can not only find nourishing berries with an astonishing variety of beneficial effects, but state-of-the-art technology too. Need to educate your faithful Pokémon? Pick a random CD up from the dirt and inject new knowledge straight into its brain. Pokéballs too are scattered all over the world in countless varieties, rendering spatial limitations functionally meaningless. The awesome power to take a creature as large as a cruise ship and make it fit in a child's pocket, instantly converting matter to energy, is just lying around for anyone who cares to take it. Some technologies are less obvious, but no less vital and important to this world's society. Infallible weather detection methods let any trainer know exactly what weather is happening anywhere in the region. Human cloning allows the employment of identical-looking people in roles such as nursing and policing, so as to better allow trainers to recognise them. Then there are the simple conveniences of life, pneumatic doors, powerful mobile phones, and indestructible fencing. Perhaps the greatest thing about the Pokémon world, though, is the freedom enjoyed by its inhabitants. In all their travels throughout the world, a trainer will never come across someone stuck in a dead-end job, labouring solely for the paycheck and hoping against hope that some corrupt businessman won't lay them off. Instead, people are free to do whatever they desire. 
Does an adult want to wander aimlessly around their house for months at a time while they wait for their child to visit? They can go for it. Does a young person want to change their career path and go from being a competitor in the Pokemon League to being a professor in the sciences? Easily done. Finally, do you want to be the very best like no one ever was? Just traipse through the tall grass with your slavishly loyal pocket monsters, initiating battle after battle until your once feeble companions are monstrosities of terrifying power. Then take a tour across the country. Even a ten-year-old can do it. Of course, this type of criticism could be applied to any fictional world. Pick at EastEnders a little bit and you'll start to wonder how the laundrette stays open with so few customers, or indeed, how some of the residents of Albert Square aren't seriously ill based on the amount of alcohol they consume. Watch any action movie at random, and you'll probably see at least one scene which should have left the protagonist grievously injured or just dead. To ask a fictional world to be a simulation of the real world is usually to intentionally miss the point of why the fiction was constructed in the first place. What's interesting about the world of Pokemon, though, is that a game series based around the core concept of forcing sentient beings to beat each other into unconsciousness for your entertainment takes place in such an otherwise utopian setting. Galar is a vision of a world in which extraordinary technological advancement has left the natural world untouched. Enormous swathes of wild land are almost entirely unmarred, full of tall grasses from which creatures spring with incredible frequency to attack their completely safe children wandering through them. Aside from the occasional mine, there are few signs of industrial depredations. No quarries, no lumber yards, and only the occasional power plant. Nature itself has proven to be incredibly resilient in this setting, which is full of thriving ecosystems despite constant danger from creatures that can breathe fire, explode, emit toxic materials, and initiate other natural disasters. It's remarkable that grass exists when you consider Charmander, the Pokémon with permanent flame on the end of its tail. Society in Galar appears to function as the sort of enlightened anarchy talked of by Gandhi as the highest form of human civilization. There are no signs of a government or legal code, and despite the occasional appearance of a single police officer, no evidence of a penal system. Humans and Pokemon pursue whatever goals they like, frequently cooperating to accomplish tasks for the public benefit. There are networks of criminals who choose to reject their more amiable neighbours, to steal or promote some bizarre ideology. But there is a simple check on their behaviour, a culture of honour and respect that is inviolate amongst Pokemon trainers. Every trainer, from the league champion to a lowly grunt of a criminal organisation, engages in Pokemon duels fairly and respects the results of each match. Furthermore, a trainer who loses a fight and is thus rendered entirely defenceless is not at any risk from their opponent, but need only pay a small fee proportionate to their wealth. Why bother with prisons or punishment when massive nation-spanning criminal hierarchies simply give up and go away after losing a sanctioned competition? Even material wealth is of very little importance. Almost the only use of currency is purchasing materials to raise Pokémon. Food, shelter, and a wide array of technological bounty is available for everyone, for free. Post-money, ecologically sustainable, and self-governing, Pokémon's world is arguably as complete a futuristic utopia as any in fiction. And yet, this enlightened society is built on the belief that it is the highest form of love to trap a wild animal in a small prison and force it into battle on a regular basis. There's a creepy objectification inherent in confining powerful and intelligent beings in small spheres and carrying them around on one's belt like tools. 
Beyond the six that Pokémon trainers are permitted to bring with them, they're encouraged to acquire as many additional monsters as they want, and digitally store them in electronic box systems. The series' oft-repeated catchphrase, Gotta catch em all, translates, in practice, to removing creatures from their natural habitat and filing them away, perhaps never to be let out again. All for the sake of filling out an encyclopedia. Perhaps the weirdest thing about the franchise is the way it wants to have its cake and eat it. It markets itself on the appealing cuteness of its creatures, emphasising the bond of love and loyalty between Pokémon and trainers. Your Pokémon are your friends, your pets, your partners, and the entire world revolves around making them participate in a kind of ritualised dogfighting, over and over again. Even the grimmest of dystopian writers might call that a bit dark. However much we might nitpick the game world's inconsistencies though, Pokémon's success as a brand is inarguable. The franchise has sold more than 340 million games, and over 25 billion trading cards. The anime boasts more than a billion viewers across 124 countries, and the 2019 film, Pokémon Detective Pikachu, took in excess of 430 million at the worldwide box office. Perhaps even more impressively, the ubiquitous Pokémon Go may have had some genuine real-world benefits. Setting up a gym or a Pokestop in an abandoned church, an underused library or overlooked museum drives up foot traffic and encourages engagement. Organisations such as Big Heritage in the UK have been keen to partner with the game's developer, Niantic Inc., in order to embrace these benefits. Concerned parents needn't worry about their children hiding in their rooms playing games for hours. Pokemon Go players are out and about, battling, swapping monsters, and maybe visiting places they've never been before. Pokemon appeals to our desire to collect, to compete, and to explore. Maybe, deep down, we all want to both befriend cute monsters and to pit them against each other in battle. However weird its game world may be when you stop and think about it, when you experience it, it works. How wonderful. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds Issue 8. This issue featured articles written by Alan Stroud, Angus McNichol, Ben Potts, Chris Cunliffe, Christopher Jarvis, Connor Eddles, Jane Cluett, John Tuttle, Lewis Calvert, Sam Long, Thomas Turnbull Ross and Tom Grundy. With special thanks to Anna Smith-Spark, Glenn Welch and Isaac Childers. It was edited by Jane Cluett and Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Christopher Jarvis, Jamie Sugar, Kai Zen, Kareem Cronfley, Peter Wotherspoon, Sarah Golding and Tom Grundy, and was edited by Ashley Devine and Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our patrons for their support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. Thank you.